0: How y'all is welcome to me. I'm Melissette, and this isn't really a frightful fret. This is more of a showcase of the hyphen podcast group. This is hyphenation, and this is what you're getting. So deal with it. No, don't deal with it. I am messing with you this holiday season and this holiday day because it is Christmas Eve, and everybody put in a lot of hard work to bring you this very special treat. We, as a group, are reading A Christmas Carol by Charles Dickens, and even though I'm Melisette and I'm the hostess with the ghostess, tonight you don't get just a ghost, you get three, and I think you know who they are, and I hope that you enjoy this as much as we enjoyed creating it for you. It was initially going to be a live show, but 2020 being, what, 2020 was, well, that did not happen. However, we showed 2020, didn't we? Because we got through it and we did it together. And we know that better days are ahead for everybody. So with this, I am bidding you adieu because A, this is a long episode and B, I really want to wish you a Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year and a Happy Kwanzaa and every other winter holiday. We miss the solstice by a few days. We miss the great conjuncture, but think about all the history that we've seen together in this year. It's just unbelievable. And I wanna thank everybody, especially the Hyphen Podcast Group, because without their content and their determination, I don't think that I would have gotten through this year without their support. And I know that a lot of you who listen to us Probably feel the same way, and it's so meaningful because whenever I hear from people, it's just so touching. And you are all my Christmas gifts, every single one of you. Now here we are, Charles Dickens, A Christmas Carol. Marley's ghost. Molly was dead to begin with. There's no doubt to whatever about that the register of his burial was signed by the clergyman the clerk the undertaker and the chief mourner scrooge signed it and scrooge's name was good upon change for anything he chose to put his hand to old Marley was as dead as a door-nail mind i don't mean to say that i know of my own knowledge what there is particularly dead about a door-nail i might have been inclined myself "'to regard a nail as the deadest piece of ironmongery in the trade. "'But the wisdom of our ancestors is in the simile, "'and my unhallowed hands shall not disturb it, "'or the country is done for. "'You will therefore permit me to repeat emphatically "'that Molly was as dead as a doornail.'" "'Ah, Scrooge knew he was dead. "'Of course he did.' How could it be otherwise? Scrooge and he were partners for I don't know how many years. Scrooge was his sole executor, his sole administrator, his sole assign, his sole residuary legatee, his sole friend and sole mourner. And even Scrooge was not so dreadfully cut up by the sad event, but that he was an excellent man of business on the very day of the funeral and solemnized it. With an undoubted bargain, the mention of Marley's funeral brings me back to the point I started from. There is no doubt that Marley was dead. This must be distinctly understood, or nothing wonderful can come of the story I'm going to relate. If we were not perfectly convinced that Hamlet's father died before the play began, there would be nothing more remarkable in his taking a stroll at night in an easterly wind upon his own ramparts than there would be in any other middle aged gentleman rashly turning out after dark in a breezy spot say saint Paul's churchyard for instance literally to astonish his son's weak mind scrooge never painted out old marley's name there it stood years afterwards above the warehouse door scrooge and marley the firm was known as Scrooge and Marley. Sometimes people new to business called Scrooge Scrooge, and sometimes Marley, but he answered to both names. It was all the same to him. Oh, but he was a tight fisted hand and the grindstone. Scrooge, a squeezing, wrenching, grasping, scraping, clutching, covetous old sinner, hard and sharp as flint, from which no st- deal had ever struck out generous fire, secret and self-contained, and solitary as an oyster. The cold within him froze his old features, nipped his pointed nose, shrivelled his cheek, stiffened his gait, made his eyes red, his thin lips blue, and spoke out shrewdly in the grafting voice-a frosty rhyme was on his head-and on his eyebrows and his wiry chin he carried his own low temperature always about with him he iced his office in the dog days and didn't it one degree at christmas external heat and cold had little influence on scrooge no warmth could warm no wintry weather chill him no wind that blew was bitterer than he no falling snow was more intent upon its purpose "'no pelting rain, less open to entreaty. "'Foul weather didn't know where to have him. "'The heaviest rain and snow and hail, "'and sleet could boast of the advantage over him "'in only one respect. "'They often came down handsomely, and Scrooge never did. "'Nobody ever stopped him in the street to say with gladsome looks, "'My dear Scrooge, how are you?' When will you come to see me? No beggars implored him to bestow a trifle. No children asked him what it was, O'Clock. No man or woman ever once in all his life inquired the way to such and such a place of Scrooge. Even the blind man's dogs appeared to know him. And when they saw him coming, would tug their owners into doorways, up courts, and then would wag their tails as though they said no eye at all is better than an evil-eyed dark master. But what did Scrooge care? It was the very thing he liked to edge his way along the crowded paths of life, warming all human sympathy to keep its distance, was what the knowing ones call nuts to Scrooge. Once upon a time, of all the good days in the year, On Christmas Eve, Old Scrooge sat busy in his counting house. It was cold, bleak, biting weather, foggy withal, and he could hear the people in the court outside go wheezing up and down, beating their hands upon their breasts and stamping their feet upon the pavement, stones to warm them. The city clocks had only just gone three, but it was quite dark already. It had not been light all day, and candles were flaring in the windows of the neighbouring offices like ruddy smears upon the palpable brown air. The fog came pouring in at every chink and keyhole, and was so dense without that, although the court was of the narrowest, the houses opposite were mere phantoms. To see the dingy clouds come drooping down, obscuring everything, one might have thought that nature lived hard by and was brewing on a large scale. The door of Scrooge's counting-house was open, that he might keep an eye upon his desk-clerk who, in a dismal little cell beyond a sort of tank, was copying letters Scrooge had a Very small fire, but the clerk's fire was so very much smaller that it looked like one coal. But he couldn't replenish it, for Scrooge kept the coal box in his own room, and so surely as the clerk came in with the shovel, the master predicted that it would be necessary for them to part. Wherefore the clerk put out his whole white comforter and tried to warm himself at the candle, in which effort, not Being a man of strong imagination, he failed. "'A merry Christmas, uncle! God save you!' cried a cheerful voice. It was the voice of Scrooge's nephew who came upon him so quickly that this was the first imitation he had of his approach. "'Bah! Scrooge!' said, "'Humbug!' He had so heated himself with rapid walking and the fog and frost his nephew of Scrooge's that— he was all in a glow, his face was ruddy and handsome, his eyes sparkled and his breath smote again. "'Christmas a humbug, uncle,' said Scrooge's nephew. "'You don't mean that, I'm sure.' "'I do,' said Scrooge. "'Merry Christmas! What right have you to be merry? What reason have you to be merry? You're poor enough!' "'Come then,' returned the nephew gaily. "'What right have you to be dismal? What reason have you to be morose?' "'You're rich enough!' Scrooge, having no better answer ready, on the spur of the moment, said, "'Bah!' again, and followed it up with, "'Humbug!' "'Don't be cross, uncle,' said the nephew. "'What else can I be?' returned the uncle, "'when I live in such a world of fools as this. "'Merry Christmas!' Out upon merry Christmas! What's Christmas time to you but a time for paying bills without money? A time for finding yourself a year older and not an hour richer? A time for balancing your books and having every item in em through a round dozen of months presented against you? If I could work my will, said Scrooge indignantly. "'Every idiot who goes about with Merry Christmas on his lips "'should be boiled in his own pudding "'and buried with a stake of holly through his heart. "'He should!' "'Uncle!' pleaded the nephew. "'Nephew!' returned the uncle sternly. "'Keep Christmas in your own way, and let me keep it in mine.' "'Keep it!' repeated Scrooge's nephew. "'But you don't keep it.' "'Leave me alone, then,' said Scrooge. "'Much good may it do you. "'Much good has ever done you.' There are many things for which I might have derived good by which I have not profited. I dare say returned the nephew Christmas among the rest, but I am sure I have always thought of Christmas time, thought of you at Christmas time when it has come around apart from the verination due to its sacred name and origin if anything belonging to it can be apart from that is good a time a kind forgiving charitable pleasant time the only time i know of in the good long calendar of the year when men and women seem by one content to open their shut up hearts freely and to think of people below them as if they really were fellow passengers to the grave and not another race of creatures bound on other journeys. Therefore, Uncle, though it has never put a scrap of gold or silver in my pocket, I believe it has done me good, and will do me good, and I say, God bless it. The clerk in the tank involuntarily applauded Bravo becoming immediately sensible of the impropriety, he poked the fire and extinguished it. The last small frail spark forever. Let me hear another sound from you," said Scrooge. "And you'll keep Christmas by losing your situation. You're quite powerful, speaker, sir," he added, turning to his nephew. "I wonder why you don't go into Parliament." "Don't be angry, Uncle. Come dine with us tomorrow." Scrooge said that he would see him. Yes, indeed, he would. He went to the length, the expression, and said that. "'he would see him in that extremity first. "'But why,' said Scrooge, "'why? "'Why did you get married?' "'Because I fell in love.' "'Because you fell in love,' growled Scrooge. "'And if that were the only thing in the world more ridiculous, than Merry Christmas. "'Good afternoon. "'Nay, Uncle. "'But you never came to see me before that happened.' why give it as a reason for not coming now good afternoon said scrooge i want nothing from you i ask nothing of you why cannot we be friends good afternoon said scrooge i'm sorry with all my heart to find you so resolute we've never had any quarrel to which i have been a party but i've made the trial in homage to christmas "'and I'll keep my Christmas humour to the last.' "'So a Merry Christmas, Uncle.' "'Good afternoon,' said Scrooge. "'And a Happy New Year.' "'Good afternoon,' said Scrooge. "'His nephew left the room without an angry word, notwithstanding. "'He stopped at the outer door "'to bestow in the greetings of the season "'on the clerk, who, cold as he was, "'was warmer than Scrooge, "'for he returned them cordially.' "'There's another fellow,' muttered Scrooge, "'who overheard him. "'My clerk with fifteen shillings a week, "'and a wife and family talking about Merry Christmas. "'I'll retire to bedlam. "'This lunatic, in letting Scrooge's nephew out, "'had let two other people in. "'They were portly gentlemen, pleasant to behold, "'and now stood with their hats off in Scrooge's office. "'They had books and papers in their hands "'and bowed to him.' "'Scrooge and Marley's, I believe,' said one of the gentlemen, referring to his list. "'Have I the pleasure of addressing Mr. Scrooge or Mr. Marley?' "'Mr. Marley's been dead these seven years,' Scrooge replied. "'He died seven years ago, this very night.' "'We have no doubt this liberality is well represented by his surviving partner,' said the gentleman, presenting his credentials." certainly was for they had been two kindred spirits at the ominous words liberality scrooge frowned and shook his head and handed the credentials back at this festive season of the year mr scrooge said the gentleman taking up his pen "'It had more than usually desirable that we should make some slight provision for the poor and destitute who suffer greatly at the present time. "'Many thousands are in want of common necessities. Hundreds and thousands are in want of common comforts, sir.' "'Are there no prisons?' asked Scrooge. "'Plenty of prisons,' said the gentleman, laying down the pen again and the union workhouses, demanded Scrooge. Are they still in operation? They are still, returned the gentleman. I wish I could say they were not. The treadmill of the poor, law, are in full vigour then, said Scrooge. Both very busy, sir. Oh, I was afraid from what you said at first that something had occurred to stop them from their useful course, said Scrooge. I'm very glad to hear it. "'Under the impression that they scarcely furnish Christmas cheer of mind or body to the multitude,' returned the gentleman, "'a few of us are endeavouring to raise a fund to buy the poor some meat and drink and means of warmth. We choose this time because it is a time of all others, when want is keenly felt, and abundance rejoices. What shall I put you down for?' "'Nothing,' Scrooge replied. "'You wish to be anonymous.' I wish to be left alone, said Scrooge, since you asked me what I wish, gentlemen. This is my answer. I don't make merry myself at Christmas, and I can't afford to make idle people merry. I help to support the establishments I have mentioned. They cost enough, and those who are badly off must go there. Many can't go there. Many would rather die. If they would rather die, said Scrooge, they had better do it and decrease the surplus population. Besides, excuse me. "'I don't know that.' "'But you might know it. observed the gentleman. "'It's not my business,' Scrooge returned. "'It's enough for a man to be—to understand his own business, "'and not interfere with other people's. "'Mine occupies me constantly. "'Good afternoon, gentlemen.' "'Seeing clearly that it would be useless to pursue their point, "'the gentleman withdrew, Scrooge resumed his labours, "'and improved opinion of himself.' "'and in a more fastidious temper than was usual with him. "'Meanwhile the fog of darkness thickened, "'so with people ran about with flaring links, "'proffering their services to go before horses and carriages "'and conduct them on their way. "'The ancient tower of a church, "'whose gruff old bell was always peeping slyly down at Scrooge, "'out of a gothic window in the wall, became invisible.' and struck the hours and quarters in the clouds with tremulous vibrations afterwards as if its teeth were chattering in its frozen head up there. The cold became intense in the main streets at the corner of the court. Some laborers were repairing the gas pipes and had lighted a great fire in a brazier round which... A party of ragged men and boys were gathered, warming their hands and winking their eyes before the blaze in rapture. The water plug being left in solitude, its overflowings sullenly congealed and turned to misanthropic ice. The brightness of the shops were holy sprigs, and berries crackled in the lamp heat of the windows, made pale ruddy faces as they passed. Pultures and grocers Trades became a splendid joke. Glorious pageant, with which it was next to impossible to believe that such dull principles as bargain and sale had anything to do. The Lord Mayor, in the stronghold of a mighty mansion house, gave orders to his fifty cooks and butlers to keep Christmas as the Lord Mayor's household should. And even the little tailor whom um, had fined five to-morrow's pudding in his garret while his lean wife and baby sallied out to buy the beef foggier yet and colder piercing searching biting cold if the good saint dunstan had but weapons that indeed he have wrought to lusty purpose The owner of one scant young nose nod and mumbled by the hungry cold as bones, a nod by dogs, stooped down at Scrooge's keyhole to regale him with a Christmas carol, but at the first sound of God bless the merry gentlemen, may nothing you dismay, Scrooge seized a ruler with such energy and action that the singer fled in terror, leaving the keyhole to the fog in even more congenial frost. At length, the hour of shutting up, the counting-house arrived. With an ill will, Scrooge dismounted from his stool and tactfully admitted to the fact to the expectant clerk in the tank, who instantly snuffed his candle out and put on his hat. You want all day tomorrow, I suppose, said Scrooge. "'If quite convenient, sir.' "'It's not convenient,' said Scrooge. "'It's not fair. "'If I was to stop half a crown for it, "'you'd think yourself ill-used. "'I'll be bound.' "'The clerk smiled faintly. Then yet, Scrooge, "'you don't think me ill-used "'when I pay a day's wages for no work.' "'The clerk observed that it was only once a year. "'A poor excuse for picking a man's pocket "'every 25th of December,' said Scrooge. "'buttoning his greatcoat to the chin. "'But I suppose you must have the whole day. "'Be here all the earlier next morning.' "'The clerk promised that he would, "'and Scrooge walked out with a growl. "'The office was closed in a twinkling, "'and the clerk, with the long ends of his white comforter "'dangling below his waist, for he boasted no greatcoat, "'went down a slide on Corn Hill.' and at the end of the lane some boys twenty times in honour of its being christmas eve and then ran home to camden town as hard as he could pelt to play blind man's bluff scrooge took his melancholy dinner in his usual melancholy tavern and having read all the newspapers and beguiled the rest of the evening with his banker's book went home to bed he lived in chambers which once belonged to his deceased partner. They were a gloomy suite of rooms, in a lowering pile of building up a yard, where it had so little business to be that one could scarcely help fancying it must have run there when it was a young house playing hide-and-seek with other houses, and forgotten on the way out again was old enough now and dreary enough, but nobody lived in it but Scrooge, and other rooms all let out as offices. The yard was so dark that even Scrooge, who knew its every stone, was fain to grope with its hands. The fog and frost so hung about the black old gateway of the house that it seemed as if the genius of the weather sat in a mournful meditation on the threshold. Now, in fact, there was nothing at all particular about the knocker on the door, except that it was very large. It is also a fact that Scrooge had seen it, night and morning, during his whole residence in that place. Also that Scrooge had as little of what is called fancy about him as any man in the city of London, including, which is a bold word, Corporation Alderman and Livery, let it also be own in mind that Scrooge not bestowed one thought on Molly since his last mention of his seven years dead partner this afternoon and then let any man explain to me if he can how it happened that Scrooge having his key in the lock of the door saw in the knocker without its undergoing any the intermediate process of change not a knocker but Molly's face, Molly's face, it was not in impenetrable shadow as the other objects in the yard were, but had a dismal light about it, like a bad lobster in a dark cellar. It was not angry or ferocious, but looked at Scrooge as Molly used to look, with ghostly spectacles toned on its ghostly forehead. The hair was curiously stood, as if by breath or hot hair, and though the eyes were wide open, they were perfectly motionless. That, and its livid colour, made a horrible, but its horror seemed to be in spite of the face and beyond its control, rather than a part of its own expression. As Scrooge looked fixedly at this phenomenon, it was a knocker again. To say that he was not startled, or that his blood had not conscious of a terrible sensation to which it had been a stranger from infancy, would be untrue. But he put his hand upon the key. He had relinquished, turned it sturdily, walked in, and lighted his candle.
1: He did pause with a moment's irresolution resolution before he shut the door and he did look cautiously behind it first, as if he half expected to be terrified with the sight of Marley's pigtails sticking out into the hall. But there was nothing on the back of the door, except the screws and nuts that held the knocker on. So he said, Poo pooh," and closed it with a bang. The sound resounded through the house like thunder. Every room above and every cask in the wine merchant's cellar below appeared to have a separate peal of echoes of its own. Scrooge was not a man to be frightened by echoes. He fastened the door and walked across the hall and up the stairs slowly too, trimming his candle as he went. You may talk vaguely about driving a coach and six up a good old flight of stairs or through a bad act of parliament, but I mean to say you might have got a hearse up that staircase. And taken it broadways with the splinter bar towards the wall and door towards the balustrades, and done it easy, there was plenty of width for that, and room to spare, which is perhaps the reason why Scrooge thought he saw a locomotive hearse going on before him in the gloom. Half a dozen gas lamps out of the street wouldn't have litted the entry too well, so you may suppose that it was pretty dark with Scrooge's dip. up Scrooge went, not carrying a button for that. Darkness is cheap, and Scrooge liked it. But before he went to shut heavy door, he walked through his rooms to see that all was right. He had just enough recollection of the face to desire it at. Sitting room, bedroom, lumber room, all as they should be. Nobody under the table, nobody under the sofa. A small fire in the grate, spoon and basin ready, and a little saucepan of gruel. Scrooge had a cold in his head upon the hob. Nobody under the bed, nobody in the closet, nobody in his dressing gown, which was hanging up in a suspicious attitude against the wall. Lumber room as usual, old fire guard, old shoes, two fish baskets, washing stand and three legs and a poker. Quite satisfied, he closed his door and locked himself in, double locked himself, which was not his custom. Thus secured against a surprise, he took off his cravat, put on his dressing gown and slippers and his nightcap, and sat before the fire to take his gruel. It was a very low fire indeed. Nothing on such a bitter night. He was obliged to sit close to it and brood over it before he could extract the least sensation of warmth from such a handful of fuel. The fireplace was an old one, built by some Dutch merchant long ago, and paved all around with quaint Dutch tiles designed to illustrate scriptures. There were Cain's and Abel's, Pharaoh's daughters, queens of Sheba, angelic messengers descending through the air and clouds like feather beds, Abraham's, Belshazzar's, apostles putting off the sea and butter boats, hundreds of figures to attract his thoughts, and yet that face of Marley, seven years dead, came like the ancient prophet's rod and swaddled up the whole. If each smooth tile had been a blank at first, with power to shape some picture on its surface from the disjointed fragments of his thoughts, there would have been a copy of old Marley's head on every one. Humbug, said Scrooge, and walked across the room. After several turns, he sat down again. As he threw his head back in the chair, his glance happened to rest upon a bell, a disused bell that hung in the room and communicated for some purpose now forgotten with a chamber in the highest story of the building. It was with great astonishment and with strange, implacable dread as he looked, he saw this bell begin to swing. It swung so softly in the outset that it scarcely made a sound, but soon it rang out loudly, and so did every bell in the house. This might have lasted half a minute, or a minute, but it seemed an hour. The bells ceased as they had begun together. They were succeeded by a clanking noise, deep down below, as if some person were dragging heavy chain over the caskets in the wine merchant's cellar. Scrooge then remembered to have heard that ghosts in haunted houses were described as dragging chains. The cellar door flew open with booming sound, and then he heard noise much louder on the floor's below, then coming up the stairs, then coming straight towards his door. It's still humbug, said Scrooge. I won't believe it. Its color changed though, when without pause, it came through the heavy door and passed into the room before his eyes. Upon its coming in, the dying flame leaped up as though it cried, I know him, Marley's ghost, and fell again. Marley's ghost, the same face, the very same, Marley in his pigtail, usual waistcoat, Tights and boots, the tassels on the ladder bristling like his pigtail, and his coat skirts and their hair up on his head. The chain he drew was clasped about his middle. It was long and wound about him like a tail, and it made, for Scrooge observed it closely, of cash boxes, keys, padlocks, ledgers, deeds, and heavy purses wrought in steel. His body was transparent, so that Scrooge, observing him and looking through his waistcoat, could see the two buttons on his coat behind. Scrooge had often heard it was said that Marley had no bowels, but he had never believed it until now. No, nor did he believe it even now. Though he looked the phantom through and through and saw it standing before him, though he felt the chilling influence of its cold, dead eyes and marked the very texture of the folded kerchief bound about its head and chin, which wrapper he had not observed before, he was still incredulous and fought against his senses. "'How now?' said Scrooge, caustic and cold as ever. "'What do you want with me?' "'Much,' Marley's voice, no doubt about it. "'Who are you?' "'Ask me who I was.' "'Who are you then?' said Scrooge, raising his voice. "'You're particular for a shade.' "'He was going to say, to a shade, but substituted this, has more appropriate. "'In life, I was your partner, Jacob Marley. "'Can you?' Can you sit down, asked Scrooge, looking doubtfully at him. I can. Do it then. Scrooge asked a question because he didn't know whether a ghost so transparent might find himself in a condition to take a chair, and felt in the event of its being impossible, it might involve the necessity of an embarrassing explanation. But the ghost sat down on the opposite side of the fireplace as if he were quite used to it. You don't believe in me, observed the ghost. I don't, said Scrooge. Whatever it is would you have in my reality beyond that of your senses? "I don't know," said Scrooge. "Why do you doubt your senses? "Because," said Scrooge, "A little thing affects them. A slight disorder of the stomach makes them cheats. You may be undigested bit of beef, a blot of mustard, a crumb of cheese, a fragment of an undone potato. There's more of gravy than of grave about you, whatever you are." Scrooge was not much in the habit of cracking jokes, nor did he feel in his heart by any means waggish then. The truth is that he tried to be smart as a means of distracting his own attention and keeping down his terror. For the spectre's voice disturbed a very marrow in his bones to sit staring at those fixed gazes in silence. For a moment would play, Scrooge felt the very deuce with him. There was something very awful too in the spectre's being provided with the infernal atmosphere of its own. Scrooge could not feel it himself, but there was clearly the case, for though the ghost sat perfectly motionless, its hair and skirts and tassels were still agitated as if hot vapor from an oven. You see this toothpick, said Scrooge, returning quickly to the charge, for the reason, just a sign, and wishing, though for only for a second, to divert Division's stony gaze from himself. I do, replied the ghost. You are not looking at it, said Scrooge, but I see it said the ghost notwithstanding well returned scrooge i have but to swallow this and be for the rest of my days persecuted by a legion of goblins all of my own creation humbug i tell you humbug at this the spirit raised a frightful cry and shook his chains with such dismal and appalling noise that Scrooge held on tight to his chair to save himself from falling in a swoon. But how much greater was his horror when the phantom, taking off the bandage around his head as if it were too warm to wear indoors, its lower jaw dropped down upon its breast. Scrooge fell upon his knees and clasped his hands before his face. "'Mercy,' he said. "'Dreadful apparition. Why do you trouble me?' man of the worldly mind replied the ghost do you believe me or not i do said scrooge i must but why do spirits walk the earth and why do they come to me it is required of every man the ghost returned that the spirit within him should walk abroad among his fellow men and travel far and wide and if that spirit goes not forth in life it is condemned to do so after death Is doomed to wander through the world, oh, woe is me, and witness what it cannot share, what it might have shared on earth and turned to happiness. Again the specter raised a cry and shook his chains and wrung shadowy hands. You are fetters, said screws. Tell me why. I wear the chain I forced in life, replied the ghost. I made it link by link and yard by yard. I girded it of my own free will, and of my own free will I wore it. It is pattern strange to you? Screwy trembled more and more. Or would you know, Rispy goes, the weight and length of the strong coil you bear yourself? It was full as heavy as long as this seven Christmas eves ago. You have labored on it since. It's a ponderous chain. Scrooge glanced about him in the floor, and the expectation of finding himself surrounded by some fifty, sixty fathoms of iron cable, but he could see nothing. Jacob, he said imploringly. Oh, Jacob Marley, tell me more. Speak comfort to me, Jacob. I have none to give, said the ghost. It comes from other regions, Ebenezer Scrooge. It is conveyed by other ministers and other kinds of men. Nor can I tell you what I would. A very little more is all permitted to me. I cannot rest. I cannot stay. I cannot linger anywhere. My spirit never walked beyond our counting house. Mock me. In life my spirit never roved beyond the narrow limits of our money changing hole and weary journeys lie before me. It was a habit with Scrooge whenever he became thoughtful to put his hand in his breeches pockets, pondering what the ghost said. He did so now, but without lifting his eyes or getting off his knees. You must have been slow about it, Jacob, Scrooge observed, in a business like manner. Slow? the ghost repeated. Seven years dead, me Scrooge. traveling the world the whole time the ghost said no rest no peace incessant torture of remorse you travel fast said scrooge on the wings of the wind replied the ghost you might have got over a great quantity of ground in seven years said scrooge the ghost, on hearing this, set up another cry and clanked its chain so hideously in the dead silence of the night that the ward would have been justified in indicting it for a nuisance. O oh, captive bound in double iron, cried the phantom, not to know that ages of incessant labor by immortal creatures where the earth must pass into eternity before the good of which it is acceptable is all developed. Not to know that any Christian spirit working kindly in his little sphere, whatever it may be, will find its mortal life too short for its vast means of usefulness. Not to know that no space of regret can make amends for one's life opportunity misused. Yet such was I. Oh, such was I. But you were always a good man of business, Jacob, faltered Scrooge. Who now began to apply this to himself? "'Business!' cried the ghost, wringing its hands. "'Mankind was my business. "'The common welfare was my business. "'Charity, mercy, forbearance, and benevolence "'were all my business. "'The dealings of my trade were but a drop of water "'at the comprehensive sea of my business. "'It held up its chains at arm's length. "'They were the cause of the unheveling grief "'and flung heavily upon the ground again. "'At this time of the rolling year, the specter said, "'I suffer most.' Why did I walk through crowds of fellow beings with my eyes turned down, never raising them to blessed star, which led the wise men to poor abode? Were there no poor homes to which its light would have conduced me? Scrooge was very much dismayed to hear the specter going on at this rate and began to quake exceedingly. Hear me, cried the ghost. My time is nearly gone. I will, said Scrooge, but don't be hard upon me. Don't be flowery, Jacob, pray." How is it that I appear before you in a shape that you can see? I may not tell. I have sat invisible beside you many, many a day. It was not an agreeable idea, Scrooge shivered and wiped the perspiration from his brow. That is no light part of my penance, pursued the ghost. I am here tonight to warn you that you have yet a chance and hope of escaping my fate, a chance and hope of procuring Ebenezer. You're always a good friend to me, said Scrooge. Thank ye." You will be haunted, resumed the ghost, by three spirits. Scrooge's contents fell almost as low as the ghost had done. Is that the chance and hope you mentioned, Jacob? He reminded in a faltering voice. It is. I, I think I'd rather not, said Scrooge. Without their visits, said the ghost, you cannot hope to shun the path I tread. Expect the first tomorrow when the bell tolls one. Couldn't I take them all at once and have it over Jacob, hinted Scrooge. When it was said these words, the spectre took its wrapper from the table and bounded it round its head as before. Scrooge knew this by the smart tone, its teeth, the jaws were brought together by the bandage. He ventured to raise his eyes again and found his supernatural visitor confronting him in the erect attitude. With its chain wound around its arm, the apparition walked backward from him. and At every step it took, the window raised itself a little so that when the spectre reached it, it was wide open. It beckoned Scrooge to approach, which he did. And when they were within two paces of each other, Marley's ghost held up its hand, warning him to come no nearer. Scrooge stopped, not so much in obedience as in surprise and fear. For one of the raising on hand, he had become insensible of confused noises in the air, incoherent sounds of lamentation and grief, regret, wailings inexpressibly sorrowful and self-accusatory. The specter, after listening for a moment, joined in the mournful dirge and floated out upon the bleak, dark night. Scrooge followed to the window, desperately in his curiosity. He looked out. The air is filled with phantoms, wandering hither and thither in restless haste and moaning as they went. Every one of them wore chains like Marley's ghost. Some few, they might be guilty governors. Were linked together, none were free. Many had been personally known to Scrooge in their life. He had been quite familiar with one old ghost. A white waistcoat with a monstrous iron safe attached to its ankle, who cried piteously at being unable to assist a wretched woman with an infant whom he saw below upon a doorstop. The misery of them was all clearly, as they sought to interfere for good in human matters and had lost the power forever. Whether these creatures faded into mist or mist and shrouded them, he could not tell. But they and their spirit voices faded together, and the night became as it had been when he walked home. Scrooge closed the window and examined the door which the ghost had entered. It was double locked as he had locked with his own hands and the boats were undisturbed. He tried to say humbug but stopped at the first syllable and being from the emotion he had undergone or the fatigues of the day or his glimpse of invisible world or the dull conversation of the ghost and the lateness of the hour which in need of repose went straight to bed without undressing and fell asleep upon the instant. The First of the Three Spirits. When Scrooge awoke, it was so dark that, looking out of the bed, he scarcely distinguished the transparent window from the opaque walls of his chamber. He was endeavoring to pierce the darkness with his ferret eyes when the chimes of the neighboring church struck the four quarters, so he listened for the hour. To his great astonishment, the heavy bell went on from six to seven, and from seven to eight, regularly up to twelve, then stopped. Twelve. It was two past when he went to bed. The clock was wrong. An icicle must have got into the works, 12. He touched the spring of his repeater and correct his preposterous clock, Its rapid little post, beat to 12 and stopped. Why? It isn't possible, said Scrooge, that I can have slept through the whole day and fall into another night. It is impossible that anything has happened to the sun. That is 12 noon the idea being an alarming one he scrambled out of bed and groped his way to the window he was obliged to rub the frost off the sleeve of his dressing gown before he could see anything he could see very little then all he could make out was that it was still very foggy and extremely cold that there was no noise of people running to and fro picking a great stir as the unquestionable would have been if night had beaten off bright day and taken possession of the world this was a great relief because three days after the sight of the first exchange paid to Mr. Ebenezer Scrooge or his order and so forth would have become a mere United States security if there were days to count by. Scrooge went to bed again and thought and thought and thought it over and over and over and could make nothing of it. The mere he thought, the more perplexed he was, the more he endeavored not to think, the more he thought, Marley's ghost bothered him exceedingly. Every time he resolved within himself, after mature inquiry that it was all a dream, his mind flew back again like a strong spring released to its first position, and presented the same problem to be worked all through, was it a dream or not? Screw lay in his state, until the chime had gone three quarters and he remembered on a sudden that the ghost had warned him of a visitation of the bell-told one. He resolved to lay awake until the hour was past, and considering that he could no more go to sleep than lie awake or go to heaven this was perhaps the wisest resolution of his power. The quarter was so long that he was more than once convinced that he must have sunk into a doze unconsciously and missed the clock. At length it broke upon his ear. Ding dong. A quarter past, said Scrooge counting. Ding dong, half past, said Scrooge. Ding dong, a quarter to it, said Scrooge. Ding dong, the hour itself, said Scrooge triumphantly and nothing else. He spoke before the hour bell sounded, which it now did with a deep, dull, hollow melancholy. One light flashed upon the room, upon the instant, and the curtains of his bed were drawn. The curtains of his bed were drawn aside, I tell you, by hand. Not the curtains at its feet, no, the curtains at its back, but those to which his face was addressed. The curtains of his bed were drawn aside and Scrooge, starting up into the half rambunctious attitude, found himself face to face with an unearthly visitor who drew them as close to it as I am now to you, and I am standing in the spirit at your elbow. It was a strange figure, like a child, yet not so like a child as like an old woman, viewed through some supernatural medium which gave him the appearance of having receded from the view and being diminished to a child's proportions. Its hair, which hung about its neck and down its back, was white as if with age, and yet the face had not a wrinkle in it, and the tenderest bloom was yet on its skin. The arms were very long and muscular, the hands the same as if it were holding an uncommon strength. Its legs and feet, most delicately fawned, were like those upper members bare. It wore a tunic of the purest white, and round its waist was bound a lustrous belt, the sheen of which was beautiful. It held a branch of fresh green holly in its hand, and in the singular contradiction of that wintry emblem, it had its dress trimmed with summer flowers. But the strangest thing about it was that... From the crown of its head sprung a bright, clear jet of light, by which all was visible, by which the doubtless occasion of its using, in its duller moments, a greater extinguisher for the cap, which it now held under its arm. Even this, though, when Scrooge looked at it with its increasing steadiness, was not its strangest quality, for as its belt sparkled and glittered now in the one part and now another, that it was light one instant, at another time was dark, so the figure itself fluctuated in its distinctness being now a thing with one arm now with one leg now with twenty legs now a pair of legs without a head now a head without a body of which dissolving parts no outline would invisible in the dense gloom wherein they melted away and in the very wonder of this it would be itself again distinct and clear as ever are you the spirit sir whose coming was foretold to me asked scrooge i am the voice was soft and gentle singular glow as if instead of being so close beside him it were a distance who and what are you Scrooge demanded I am the ghost of Christmas past long past inquired Scrooge observing of his dwarfish stature no your past perhaps Scrooge could not have told anybody why if anybody could have asked him but he had a special desire to see the spirit in its cap and begged him to be covered what Exclaimed a ghost, Would you so soon put out with worldly hands the light I give? Is it not enough that you are one of those whose passion made this cap and forced me through whole trains of years to wear it low upon my brow? Scrooge reverently disclaimed all intention to offer in any knowledge of having willfully bonneted the spirit at any period in his life. He then made bold to inquire what business brought him here. Your welfare said the ghost. Scrooge expressed himself much obliged, but could not help thinking that the night unbroken rest would have been more conducive to the end. The spirit must have heard him thinking, for said immediately, Your reclamation, then, take heed.
2: It put out its strong hand as it spoke and clasped him gently by the arm. Rise and walk with me. It would have been in vain for Scrooge to plead that the weather and the hour were not adapted to pedestrian purposes, that bed was warm and the thermometer a long way below freezing, that he was clad but lightly in his slippers, dressing-gown, and nightcap, and that he had a cold upon him at that time. The grasp, though gentle as a woman's hand, was not to be resisted. He rose, but finding that the spirit made towards the window, clasped his robe in supplication. I am a mortal," Scrooge remonstrated, and liable to fall, bear but a touch of my hand there said the spirit laying its hand upon his heart and you shall be upheld in more than this as the words were spoken they passed through the hall and stood upon an open country road with fields on either hand the city had entirely vanished not a vestige of it was to be seen the darkness and the mist had vanished with it for it was clear cold winter day with snow upon the ground good heaven said scrooge "'clasping his hands together as he looked about him. "'I was bred in this place. "'I was a boy here.' "'The spirit gazed upon him mildly. Its gentle touch, though it had been light and instantaneous, "'appeared still present to the old man's sense of feeling. "'He was conscious of a thousand odors floating in the air, "'each one connected with a thousand thoughts and hopes and joys "'and cares long, long forgotten. "'Your lip is trembling,' said the ghost. "'And what is that upon your cheek?' "'Scrooge muttered with an unusual catching in his voice.' that it was a pimple, and begged the ghost to lead him where he would. "'You recollect the way?' inquired the spirit. "'Remember it,' cried Scrooge, with fervor. "'I could walk it blindfold.' "'Strange to have forgotten it for so many years,' observed the ghost. "'Let us go on.' They walked along the road, Scrooge recognizing every gate and post and tree, until a little market town appeared in the distance, with its bridge, its church, and winding river. Some shaggy ponies now were seen trotting towards them with boys upon their backs, who called to other boys in country gigs and carts driven by farmers. All these boys were in great spirits and shouted to each other until the broad fields were so full of merry music that the crisp air laughed to hear it. These are but the shadows of the things that have been, said the ghost. They have no consciousness of us. The jocund travelers came on, and as they came, Scrooge knew and named every one of them. Why was he rejoiced beyond all bounds to see them? Why did this cold eye glisten? and his heart leap up as they went past. Why was he filled with gladness when he heard them give each other Merry Christmas as they parted at crossroads and byways for their several homes? What was Merry Christmas to Scrooge? Out upon Merry Christmas. Excuse me? Out upon Merry Christmas. What good had it ever done to him? The school is not quite deserted, said the ghost. A solitary child, neglected by his friends, is left there, still. Scrooge said he knew it and he sobbed. They left the high road, a by-well-remembered lane, and soon approached a mansion of dull red brick, with a little weather-cocked surmounted copula on the roof, and a bell hanging in it. It was a large house, but one of broken fortunes, for the spacious offices were little used, their walls were damp and mossy, their windows broken, and their gates decayed. Fowls clucked and strutted in the stables, and the coach houses and sheds were overrun with grass, nor was it more retentive of its ancient state within. For entering the dreary hall and glancing through the open doors of many rooms, they found them poorly furnished, cold and vast. There was an earthy savor in the air, a chilly barrenness in the place, which associated itself somehow with too much getting up by candlelight and not too much to eat. They went, the ghost and Scrooge, across the hall to a door at the back of the house. It opened before them and disclosed a long, bare, melancholy room made bare still by lines of plain deal forms and desks. At one of these, a lonely boy was reading near a feeble fire, and Scrooge sat down upon a form and wept to see his poor forgotten self as he used to be. Not a latent echo in the house, not a squeak, a scuffle from the mice behind the paneling, not a drip from the half-thawed waterspout in the dull yard behind, not a sigh among the leafless boughs of one despondent poplar, the idle swinging of an empty storehouse door nope not a clicking in the fire but fell upon the heart of scrooge with a softening influence and gave a freer passage to his tears the spirit touched him on the arm and pointed to his younger self intent upon his reading suddenly a man in foreign garments wonderfully real and distinct to look at stood outside the window with an axe stuck in his belt and leading by the bridle an ass laden with wood why, it's Alibaba, Scrooge exclaimed in ecstasy. It's dear old honest Ali Baba. Yes, yes, I know. One Christmas time, when yonder solitary child was left here all alone, he did come for the first time, just like that. Poor boy. And Valentine, said Scrooge, and his wild brother, Orson. There they go. And what's his name, who was put down in his drawers, asleep at the gate of Damascus? Don't you see him? and the sultan's groom turned upside down by the genie. There he is upon his head. Serve him right. I'm glad of it. What business had he to be married to the princess? To hear Scrooge expending all the earnestness of his nature on such subjects, in a most extraordinary voice between laughing and crying, and to see his heightened and excited face, would have been a surprise to his business friends in the city. Indeed. There's the parrot, cried Scrooge. Green body and yellow tail, with a thing like a lettuce growing out of the top of its head. There he is. Poor Robin Crusoe, he called him. When he came home again after sailing round the island. Poor Robin Crusoe, where had you been? Robin Crusoe. The man thought he was dreaming, but he wasn't. It was the parrot, you know. There goes Friday, running for his life to the little creek. Hello, halloo! Then, with a rapidity of transition very foreign to his usual character, he said in a pity for his former self. Poor boy. And cried again. I wish, Scrooge muttered, putting his hand in his pocket and looking about him after drying his eyes with his cuff. But it's too late now. What is the matter? asked the spirit. Nothing, said Scrooge. Nothing. There was a boy singing a Christmas carol at my door last night. I should like to have given him something. That's all. The ghost smiled thoughtfully and waved its hand, saying as did let us see another Christmas. Scrooge's former self grew larger at the words, and the room became a little darker and more dirty. The panels shrunk, the windows cracked, fragments of plaster fell out of the ceiling, and the naked laths were shown instead. But how all this was brought about, Scrooge knew no more than you do. He only knew that it was quite correct, that everything had happened so, that there he was, alone again, when all the other boys had gone home for the jolly holidays. He was not reading now. But walking up and down despairingly, Scrooge looked at the ghost, and with a mournful shaking of his head, glanced anxiously towards the door. It opened, and a little girl, much younger than the boy, came darting in and putting her arms about his neck, and often kissing him, addressed him as, "'Dear, dear brother.' "'I have come to bring you home, dear brother,' said the child, clapping her tiny hands and bending down to laugh. "'To bring you home, home, home.' "'Home,' little fan returned the boy. Yes, said the child, brimful of glee, home for good and all, home for ever and ever. Father is so much kinder than he used to be, that home's like heaven. He spoke so gently to me one dear night when I was going to bed, that I was not afraid to ask him once more if you might come home. And he said, yes, you should, and sent me in a coach to bring you. And you're to be a man, said the child, opening her eyes, and are never to come back here. But first, we're to be together all the Christmas long, and have the merriest time in all the world. "'You're quite a woman, little fan,' exclaimed the boy. She clapped her hands and laughed, and tried to touch his head, but being too little, he laughed again, and stood on tiptoe to embrace him. Then she began to drag him, in her childish eagerness towards the door, and he, nothing loth to go, accompanied her. A terrible voice in the hall cried, "'Bring down Master Scrooge's box there!' In the hall appeared the schoolmaster himself, who glared on Master Scrooge with a ferocious condescension, and threw him into the dreadful state of mind by shaking hands with him. He then conveyed him and his sister into the veriest old well of a shivering best parlor that ever was seen, where the maps upon the wall and the celestial and terrestrial globes in the windows were waxy with cold. Here he produced a decanter of curiously light wine and a block of curiously heavy cake, and administered installments of those dainties to the young people, at the same time sending out a meager servant to offer a glass of something to the postboy, who answered that he thanked the gentleman, but if it was the same tap as he had tasted before, he'd rather not. Master Scrooge's trunk being by this time tied on to the top of the chaise, the children bade the schoolmaster goodbye right-willing, and getting into it drove gaily down the garden sweep, the quick wheels dashing the hoar frost and snow off the dark leaves of the evergreens like spray. Always a delicate creature, whom a breath might have withered, said the ghost, but she had a large heart. So she had, cried Scrooge. You're right. I will not gainsay it, spirit, God forbid. She died a woman, said the ghost, and had, as I think, children. One child, Scrooge returned. True, said the ghost your nephew. Scrooge seemed uneasy in his mind and answered briefly, yes. Although they had but that moment left the school behind them, they were now in the busy thoroughfares of a city where shadowy passengers passed and repassed, where shadowy carts and coaches battled for the way and all the strife and tumult of a real city were. It was made plain enough by the dressing of the shops that here too it was Christmas time again. But it was evening and the streets were lighted up The ghost stopped at a certain warehouse door and asked Scrooge if he knew it. Know it, said Scrooge. Was I apprenticed here? They went in. At sight of an old gentleman in a Welsh wig, sitting behind such a high desk that if he had been two inches taller, he might have knocked his head against the ceiling, Scrooge cried in great excitement. Why, it's old Fezziwig. Bless his heart. It's Fezziwig alive again. Old Fezziwig laid down his pen and looked up at the the clock, which pointed to the hour of seven. He rubbed his hands, adjusted his capacious waistcoat, laughed all over himself from his shoes to his organ of benevolence, and called out in a comfortable, oily, rich, fat, jovial voice, Yo-ho there! Ebenezer! Dick! Scrooge's former self, now grown a young man, came briskly in, accompanied by his fellow apprentice, Dick Wilkins. To be sure, said Scrooge to the ghost, Bless me, yes, there he is. He was very much attached to me was dick poor dick dear dear yo ho my boys said fezziwig no more work tonight christmas eve dick christmas ebenezer let's have the shutters up cried old fezziwig with a sharp clap of his hands before a man could say jack robinson you wouldn't believe how those two fellows went at it they charged into the street with the shutters one, two, three, had em up in places, four, five, six, barred em and pinned em seven, eight, nine, and came back before you could have got to twelve, panting like racehorses. Highly ho, cried old Fezziwig, skipping down from the high desk with wonderful agility. Clear away, my lads, and let's have lots of room here. Highly ho, dick. Cheer up, Ebenezer! Clear away. There was nothing they wouldn't have cleared away or couldn't have cleared away. With old Fezziwig looking on, it was done in a minute. Every movable was packed off as if it were dismissed from public life forevermore. The floor was swept and watered, the lamps were trimmed, fuel was heaped upon the fire, and the warehouse was as snug and warm and dry and bright as a ballroom as you would have desired to see upon a winter's night. In came a fiddler with a music book and went up to the lofty desk and made an orchestra of it, and it turned like fifty stomach aches. "'In came Mrs. Fezziwig, one vast substantial smile. "'In came the three Miss Fezziwigs, beaming and lovable. "'In came the six young followers whose hearts they broke. "'In came all the young men and women employed in the business. "'In came the housemaid with her cousin the baker. "'In came the cook with her brother's particular friend, the milkman. "'In came the boy from over the way, "'who was suspected of not having bored enough from his master. "'Trying to hide himself behind the girl,' from next door, but one who was proved to have had her ears pulled by her mistress. In they all came, one after another, some shyly, some boldly, some gracefully, some awkwardly, some pushing, some pulling, in they all came. Anyhow and everyhow, away they all went, twenty couple at once, hands half round and back, again the other way, down the middle and up again, round and round in various stages of affectionate grouping old top couple always turning up in the wrong place, new top couple starting off again. As soon as they got there, all top couples at last, and not a bottom one to help them. When this result was brought about, old Fezziwig clapping his hands to stop the dance cried out, well done, and the fiddler plunged his hot face into a pot of porter, especially provided for that purpose. But scorning rest upon his reappearance, he instantly began again. Though there were no dancers yet, as if the other fiddler had been carried home exhausted on a shutter and he were a brand new man resolved to beat him out of sight or perish there were more dances and there were forfeits and more dances and there was cake and there was negus and there was a great piece of cold roast and there was a great piece of cold boiled and there were immense pies and plenty of beer but the great effect of the evening came after the roast and boiled And when the fiddler, an artful dog, mind you, the sort of man who knew his business better than you or I could ever have told him, struck up Sir Roger de Culverie. Then old Fezziwig stood out to dance with Mrs. Fezziwig. Top couple, too, with a good stiff piece of work, cut out for them. Three or four and twenty pair of partners, people who were not to be trifled with, people who would dance and had no notion of walking. Mr. Fezziwig's ball... But if they had been twice as many, uh, four times old Fezziwig would have been a match for them. And so would Mrs. Fezziwig. As to her, she was worthy to be his partner in every sense of the term. If that's not high praise, tell me higher, and I'll use it. A positive light appeared to issue from Fezziwig's calves. They shone in every part of the dance like moons. You couldn't have predicted at any given time what would have become of them next. And when old Fezziwig and Mrs. Fezziwig had gone all through the dance, advance and retire, both hands to your partner, bow and curtsy, corkscrew, thread the needle, and back again to your place, Fezziwig cut, cut so deftly that he appeared to wink with his legs, and came upon his feet again without a stagger. When the clock struck eleven, this domestic ball broke up. Mr. and Mrs. Fezziwig took their stations, one on either side of the door, and shaking hands with every possible person, individually as he or she went out wished him or her a merry christmas when everybody had retired but the two apprentices they did the same to them and thus the cheerful voices died away and the lads were left to their beds which were under a counter in the back shop during the whole of this time scrooge had acted like a man out of his wits his heart and soul were in the scene and with his former self he corroborated everything remembered everything enjoyed everything and underwent the strangest agitation. It was not until now, when the bright faces of his former self and dick were turned from them, that he remembered the ghost, and re- became conscious that it was looking full upon him, while the light upon its head burned very clear. A small matter, said the ghost, to make these silly folks so full of gratitude. Small, echoed Scrooge. The spirit signed to him to listen to the two apprentices who were pouring out their hearts in praise of Fezziwig, and when he had done so, said, Why is it not? He has spent but a few pounds of your mortal money, three or four, perhaps. Is that so much that he deserves this praise? It isn't that, said Scrooge, heated by the remark, and speaking unconsciously like his former, not his latter self. It isn't that, spirit. He has the power to render us happy or unhappy, to make our service light or burdensome, a pleasure or a toil. Say that his power lies in the words and looks, and things so slight and insignificant that it is impossible to add and count them up. What then? The happiness his gives is as great as if it cost a fortune. He felt the spirits glance and stopped. What is the matter? asked the ghost. Nothing particular, said Scrooge. Something, I think, the ghost insisted no said scrooge no i should like to be able to say a word or two to my clerk just now that's all his former self turned down the lamps as he gave utterance to the wish and scrooge and the ghosts again stood side by side in the open air my time grows short observed the spirit quick this was not addressed to scrooge or to any one whom he could see but it produced an immediate effect for again scrooge saw himself he was older now a man in the prime of life his face had not the harsh and rigid lines of later years, but it had begun to wear the signs of care and avarice. There was an eager, greedy, restless motion in the eye, which showed the passion that had taken root and where the shadow of the growing tree would fall. He was not alone, but sat by the side of a fair young girl in a morning dress, in whose eyes there were tears, which sparkled in the light that shone out of the ghost of Christmas past. It matters little, she said softly, to you very little another idol has displaced me and if it can cheer and comfort you in time to come as i would have tried to do i have no just cause to grieve what idol has displaced you he rejoined the golden one this is the even-handed dealing of the world he said there is nothing on which it is so hard as poverty and there is nothing to profess to condemn with such severity as the pursuit of wealth you feel the world too much she answered all your other hopes have merged into the hope of being beyond the chance of its sordid reproach. I have seen your nobler aspirations fall off one by one until the master passion, gain, engrosses you. Have I not? What then, he retorted. Even if I have grown so much wiser, what then? I am not changed towards you. She shook her head. Am I? Our, tra- our contract is an old one. It was made when we were both poor poor and content to be so, until in good season we can improve our worldly fortune by our patient industry. You are changed. When it was made, you were another man. I was a boy, he said impatiently. Your own feeling tells you that you are not what you are. She returned, I am. That which promised happiness when we were in one heart is fraught with misery now that we are two. How often and how keenly I have thought of this. I will not say. It is enough that I have thought of it and can release you. Have I ever sought release? In words? No. In what then? In a changed nature. In an altered spirit. In another atmosphere of life. Another hope. As at its great end. In everything that made my love of any worth or value in your sight. If this had never been between us, said the girl, looking mildly but with steadiness upon him, tell me. Would you seek me out and try to win me now? Ah, no. He seemed to yield, but the justice of the supposition in spite of himself. But he said with a struggle, You think not? I would gladly think otherwise if I could, she answered. Heaven knows, when I have learned a truth like this, I know how strong and irresistible it must be. But if you were free today, tomorrow, yesterday, can even I believe that you would choose a dowerless girl? You who, in your very confidence with her, weigh everything by gain, or, choosing her, if for a moment you were false enough to your one guiding principle to do so, do I not know that your repentance and regret would surely follow? I do, and I release you, with a full heart for the love of him you once were. He was about to speak, but with her head turned from him, she resumed. You may, the memory of what is past, "'Hath makes me hope you will have pain in this. "'A very, very brief time, and you will dismiss the recollection of it. "'Gladly, as an unprofitable dream from which it happened, well that you awoke. "'May you be happy in the life you have chosen.' "'She left him, and then parted. "'Spirit,' said Scrooge, "'show me no more. "'Conduct me home. "'Why do you delight in my torture?' "'One shadow more,' exclaimed the ghost. "'No more!' cried Scrooge, no more, I don't wish to see it, show me no more you know, I love the spirit of Christmas past, it's one of the best ones always also makes me wonder if when the spirits come to him, he's actually having a near death experience, but that's just me
3: but the relentless ghost pinioned him in both his arms and forced him to observe what happened next. They were in another scene and place, a room not very large or handsome, but full of comfort. Near to the winter fire sat a beautiful young girl, so like the last that Scrooge believed it was the same until he saw her, now a comely matron sitting opposite her daughter. The noise in this room was perfectly tumultuous, for there were more children there than Scrooge, in his agitated state of mind, could count. And unlike the celebrated herd in the poem, they were not forty children conducting themselves like one, but every child was conducting itself like forty. The consequences were uproarious beyond belief, but no one seemed to care. On the contrary, the mother and daughter laughed heartily and enjoyed it very much. And the latter soon beginning to mingle in the sports, got pillaged by the young brigands most ruthlessly. What would I have not given to be one of them? Though I never could have been so rude, no, no. I wouldn't for the wealth of all the world have crushed that braided hair and torn it down. And for the precious little shoe, I wouldn't have plucked it off, God bless my soul, to save my life. As to measuring her waist as sport as they did, bold young brood, I couldn't have done it, I should have expected my arm to have grown around it for punishment and never come straight again. And yet I should have dearly liked, I own, to touch her lips, to have questioned her that she might have opened them, to have looked upon the lashes of her downcast eyes and never raised a blush, to have let loose the waves of her hair, an inch of which would be a keepsake beyond price. In short, I should have liked, I do confess, to have had the lightest license of a child, and yet to have been man enough to know its value. But now a knocking at the door was heard, and such a rush immediately ensued, that she, with laughing face and plundered dress, was borne towards it, the center of a flushed and boisterous group, just in time to greet the father, who came home attended by a man laden with Christmas toys and presents. Than the shouting and the struggling and the onslaught that was made on the defenseless porter. The scaling him with chairs for ladders that dive into his pockets, despoil him of brown paper parcels, hold on tight by his cravat, hug him round his neck, pommel his back, and kick his legs in irrepressible affection. The shouts of wonder and delight with which the development of every package was received the terrible announcement that the baby had been taken in the act of putting a doll's frying pan into his mouth and was more than suspected to have swallowed a fictitious turkey glued to a wooden platter, the immense relief of finding this a false alarm, the joy, the gratitude, and the ecstasy, they are all indescribable alike. It is enough that by degrees the children and their emotions cut out of the parlor and by one stair at a time up to the top of the house where they went to bed and so subsided." And now Scrooge looked on more attentively than ever, when the master of the house, having his daughter leaning fondly on him, sat down with her and her mother at his own fireside. And when he thought that such another creature, quite as graceful and as full of promise, might have called him father, and been a springtime in the haggard winter of his life, his sight grew very dim indeed. "Bell," said the husband, turning to his wife with a smile, "'I saw an old friend of yours this afternoon.' "'Who was it?' "'Guess.' "'How can I?' "'I don't know,' she added in the same breath, laughing as he laughed. "'Mr. Scrooge!' "'Mr. Scrooge it was. "'I passed his office window, and as it was not shut up and he had a candle inside, "'I could scarcely help seeing him. "'His partner lies upon the point of death, I hear.' And there he sat alone, quite alone in the world, I do believe. Spirit, said Scrooge in a broken voice, remove me from this place. I told you these were the shadows of things that have been, said the ghost. That they are what they are. Do not blame me. Remove me, Scrooge exclaimed. I cannot bear it. He turned upon the ghost and seeing that it looked upon him with a face in which some strange way there were fragments of all the faces it had shown him, wrestled with it, Leave me! Take me back! Haunt me no longer! In the struggle, if that can be called a struggle, in which the ghost, with no visible resistance on its own part, was undisturbed by any effort of its adversary, Scrooge, observed that its light was burning high and bright and dimly connecting that with its influence over him, he seized the extinguisher cap, and by a sudden action pressed it down upon its head. The spirit dropped beneath it, so that the extinguisher covered its whole form, but though Scrooge pressed it down with all his force, he could not hide the light which streamed from under it in an unbroken flood upon the ground. He was conscious of being exhausted, and overcome by an irresistible drowsiness, and further, of being in his own bedroom. He gave the cap a parting squeeze, in which his hand relaxed, and had barely time to reel to bed before he sank into a heavy sleep. Awakening in the middle of a prodigiously tough snore, and sitting up in bed to get his thoughts together, Scrooge had no occasion to be told that the bell was again upon the stroke of one. He felt he was restored to consciousness in the right nick of time, for the especial purpose of holding a conference with the second messenger dispatched to him through Jacob Marley's intervention. But finding that, he turned uncomfortably cold when he began to wonder which of his curtains this new specter would draw back. He put them, every one aside with his own hands, and lying down again, established a sharp lookout all around the bed. For he wished to challenge the spirit on the moment of its appearance, and did not wish to be taken by surprise and made nervous. Gentlemen of the free and easy sort, who plume themselves on being acquainted with a move or two, and being usually equal to the time of day, express the wide range of their capacity for adventure by observing that they are good for anything, from a pitch-and-toss to manslaughter, between which opposite extremes, no doubt, there lies a tolerably wide and comprehensive range of subjects. Without venturing for Scrooge, quite as heartily as this, I don't mind calling on you to believe he was ready for a good, broad field of strange appearances, and that nothing between a baby and a rhinoceros would have astonished him very much. Now, being prepared for almost anything, he was not, by any means, prepared for nothing. And consequently, when the bell struck one and no shape appeared, he was taken with a violent fit of trembling. Five minutes, ten minutes, a quarter of an hour went by, and yet nothing came. All this time he lay upon his bed, the very core and center of a blaze of ruddy light which streamed upon it, when the clocks proclaimed the hour, and which, being only light, was more alarming than a dozen ghosts, as he was powerless to make out what it meant— or would be at, and was sometimes apprehensive, that he might be, at that very moment, an interesting case of spontaneous combustion without having the consolation of knowing it. At last, however, he began to think, as you or I would have thought at first, for it is always the person not in the predicament who knows what ought to have been done in it, and would unquestionably have done it too. At last, I say, He began to think that the source and secret of the ghostly light might be in the adjoining room. From whence, on further tracing it, it seemed to shine. This idea taking full possession of his mind, he got up softly and shuffled in his slippers to the door. The moment Scrooge's hand was on the lock, a strange voice called him in by his name and bade him enter. He obeyed. It was his own room, there was no doubt about that, but it had undergone a surprising transformation. The walls and ceiling were so hung with living green that it looked a perfect grove, from every part of which bright gleaming berries glistened. The crisp leaves of holly, mistletoe, and ivy reflected back the light as if so many little mirrors had been scattered there, and such a mighty blaze went up roaring in the chimney, as the dull petrification of a hearth had never known in Scrooge's time or Marley, or for many, many a winter season gone. Heaped up on the floor to form a kind of throne were turkeys, geese, game, poultry, brawn, great joints of meat, sucking pigs, long wreaths of sausage, mince pies, plum puddings, barrels of oysters, red-hot chestnuts, cherry-cheeked apples, juicy oranges, luscious pears, immense twelfth cakes, and seething bowls of punch that made the chamber dim with their delicious steam. In easy state, upon this couch, there sat a jolly giant, glorious to see, who bore a glowing torch in shape not unlike Plenty's horn, and held it up high to shed light on Scrooge as he came peeping round the corner. Come in, exclaimed the ghost. Come in, and know me better, man. Scrooge entered timidly and hung his head before this spirit. He was not the dogged Scrooge he had been, and though the spirit's eyes were clear and kind, he did not like to meet them. "'I am the ghost of Christmas present,' said the spirit. "'Look upon me!' Scrooge reverently did so. It was clothed in one simple green robe or mantle, bordered with white fur. This garment hung so loosely on the figure that its capacious breast was bare, as if disdaining to be warded or concealed by any artifice.' Its feet, observable beneath the ample folds of the garment, were also bare, and on its head it wore no other covering than a holly wreath, set here and there with shining icicles. Its dark brown curls were long and free, as free as its genial face, its sparkling eyes, its open hand, and its cheery voice, its unconstrained demeanor and its joyful air. Girded round its middle was an antique scabbard, but no sword was in it and the ancient sheath was eaten up with rust. Scrooge's Third Visitor You have never seen the likes of me before, exclaimed the spirit. Never, Scrooge made to answer it, have never walked forth with the younger members of my family, meaning, for I'm very young, my elder brothers born in these later years, pursued the phantom. I don't think I have, said Scrooge, I'm afraid I have not. Have you had many brothers, Spirit? More than eighteen hundred, said the ghost. A tremendous family to provide for, muttered Scrooge. The ghost of Christmas present rose. Spirit, said Scrooge submissively. Conduct me where you will. I went forth last night on compulsion and I learnt a lesson, which is working now. Tonight, if you have ought to teach me. Let me profit by it. Touch my robe! Scrooge did as he was told, and held it fast. Holly, mistletoe, red berries, ivy, turkeys, geese, game, poultry, brawn, meat, pigs, sausages, oysters, pies, puddings, and fruit and punch all vanished instantly. So did the room, the fire, the ruddy glow, the hour of night, and they stood in the city streets on Christmas morning. For the weather was severe the people made a rough but brisk and not unpleasant kind of music in scraping the snow from the pavement in front of their dwellings and from the tops of their houses whence it was mad delight to the boys to see it come plumping down into the road below and splitting into artificial little snowstorms the house fronts looked black enough and the windows blacker contrasting with the smooth white sheet of snow upon the roofs And with the dirtier snow upon the ground, which last deposit had been plowed up in deep furrows by the heavy wheels of carts and wagons, furrows that crossed and recrossed each other hundreds of times where the great streets branched off and made intricate channels hard to trace in the thick yellow mud and icy water. The sky was gloomy, and the shortest streets were choked up with a dingy mist, half thawed, half frozen, whose heavier particles descended in a shower of sooty atoms, as if all the chimneys in Great Britain had by one consent caught fire and were blazing away to their dear hearts' contents. There was nothing very cheerful in the climate or the town, and yet there was an air of cheerfulness abroad that the clearest summer air and the brightest summer sun might have endeavored to diffuse in vain. Before the people who were shoveling away on the housetops were jovial and full of glee, calling out to one another from the parapets and now and then exchanging a facetious snowball, better-natured missile far than many a wordy jest, laughing heartily when it went right and not less heartily when it went wrong. The poulterer's shops were still half open and the fruiterers were radiant in their glory. There were great round pot-bellied baskets of chestnuts "'shaped like the waistcoats of jolly old gentlemen "'lolling at the doors and tumbling out into the street "'in their apoplectic opulence. "'There were ruddy, brown-faced, broad-girthed Spanish onions "'shining in the fatness of their growth like Spanish friars "'and winking from their shelves in wanton slyness "'as the girls went by "'and glanced demurely at the hung-up mistletoe. "'There were pears and apples clustered high in blooming pyramids, there were bunches of grapes made in shopkeepers' benevolence to dangle from conspicuous hooks that people's mouths might water gratis as they passed. There were piles of filiberts, mossy and brown, recalling in their fragrance ancient walks among the woods and pleasant shufflings ankle-deep through the withered leaves. There were Norfolk biffins, squat and swarthy, setting off the yellow of the oranges and lemons, and in the great compactness of their juicy persons, urgently entreating and beseeching to be carried home in paper bags and eaten after dinner. The very gold and silver fish set forth among these choice fruits in a bowl, though members of a dull and stagnant-blooded race appeared to know that there was something going on, and to a fish went gasping round and round their little world in a slow and passionless excitement. The grocers, oh, the grocers, nearly closed with perhaps two shutters down or one, but through these gaps such glimpses. It was not alone that the scales, descending on the counter, made a merry sound, or that twine and roller parted company so briskly, or that the canisters were rattled up and down like juggling tricks, or even that the blended scents of tea and coffee were so grateful to the nose. Or even that the raisins were so plentiful and rare, the almonds so extremely white, and the sticks of cinnamon so long and straight, the other spices so delicious, the candied fruits so caked and spotted with molten sugar as to make the coldest lookers-on feel faint and subsequently bilious. Nor was it the figs were moist and pulpy, or that the French plums blushed in the modest tartness from their highly decorated boxes, or that everything was good to eat and in its Christmas dress, but the customers were all so hurried and so eager in the hopeful promise of the day that they tumbled up against each other at the door, crashing their wicker baskets wildly, and left their purchases upon the counter and came running back to fetch them, and committed hundreds of the like mistakes, in the best humor possible, while the grocer and his people were so frank and fresh that the polished hearts with which they fastened their aprons behind might have been their own, worn outside for general inspection, and for Christmas daws to peck at if they chose. But as soon as the steeples called the good people all to church and chapel, and away they came, flocking through the streets in their best clothes, with their gayest faces, and all at the same time emerged from scores of by-streets and lanes, nameless turnings, innumerable people, carrying their dinners to the baker's shops. The sight of these poor revelers appeared to interest the spirit very much, and he stood with Scrooge beside him in the baker's doorway, and taking off the covers as their bearers passed, sprinkled incense on their dinners from his torch and it was a very uncommon kind of torch. For once or twice, when there were angry words between some dinner carriers who had jostled each other, he shed a few drops of water on them from it, and their good humor was restored directly. For they said, it was a shame to quarrel upon Christmas Day, and so it was. God love it, so it was. In time, the bells ceased, and the bakers were shut up, and yet there was a genial shadowing forth of all these dinners and the progress of their cooking in the thawed blotch of wet above each baker's oven where the pavement smoked as if its stones were cooking too. Is there a peculiar flavor in what you sprinkle from your torch? asked Mr. Scrooge. There is, my own. Would it apply to any kind of dinner on this day? asked Scrooge. To any kindly given, to a poor one most. "'Why do a poor one most?' asked Scrooge. "'Because it needs it most.' "'Spirit,' said Scrooge after a moment's thought, "'I wonder you, of all the beings in the many worlds about us, "'should desire to cramp these people's opportunity of innocent enjoyment.' "'I,' cried the spirit, "'you would deprive them of their means of dining every seventh day.' "'often the only day on which can be said to dine at all,' said Scrooge. "'Wouldn't you?' "'I?' cried the spirit. "'You speak to close these places on the seventh day,' said Scrooge, "'and it comes to the same thing.' "'I seek!' exclaimed the spirit. "'Forgive me if I am wrong. "'It has been done in your name, or at least in that of your family,' said Scrooge. "'There are some of us upon this earth of yours,' returned the spirit." who lay claim to know us, and who do their deeds of passion, pride, ill-will, hatred, envy, bigotry, and selfishness in our name, who are as strange to us and all our kith and kin as if they had never lived, remember that, and charge their doings on themselves, not us. Scrooge promised that he would, and they went on, invisible as they had been before, into the suburbs of the town. It was a remarkable quality of the ghost which Scrooge had observed at the Baker's, that, notwithstanding his gigantic size, he could accommodate himself to any place with ease, and that he stood beneath a low roof quite as gracefully and like a supernatural creature as it was possible he could have done in any lofty hall. And perhaps it was the pleasure the good spirit had shown in showing off his power of his, or else. It was his own kind, generous, hearty nature, and his sympathy with all poor men, that led him straight to Scrooge's clerks. For there he went and took Scrooge with him, holding his robe, and on the threshold of the door the spirit smiled and stopped to bless Bob Cratchit's dwelling with a sprinkling of his torch. Think of that. Bob had but fifteen Bob a week himself. He pocketed on Saturday but fifteen copies of his Christian name. And yet the ghost of Christmas present blessed his four-roomed house. Then up rose Mrs. Cratchit, Cratchit's wife, dressed out but poorly in a twice-turned gown, but brave in ribbons, which are cheap and make a goodly show for sixpence. And she laid the cloth, assisted by Belinda Cratchit, second of her daughters, also brave in ribbons while Mr. Peter Cratchit plunged a fork into the saucepan of potatoes, and getting the corners of his monstrous shirt-collar, Bob's private property, conferred upon his son and heir in honor of the day, into his mouth, rejoiced to find himself so gallantly attired, and yearned to show his linen in the fashionable parks. And now two smaller Cratchits, boy and girl, came tearing in, screaming that outside the baker's they had smelt the goose and they had known it for their own, and basking in luxurious thoughts of sage and onion, these young Cratchits danced about the table and exalted Master Peter Cratchit to the skies, while he, not proud, although his collar nearly choked him, blew the fire until the slow potatoes bubbling up knocked loudly at the saucepan lid to be let out and peeled.
4: What has ever got your precious father, then? said Mrs. Cratchit and your brother Tiny Tim, and Martha weren't it as late last Christmas by half an hour. Here's Martha, mother, said a girl appearing as she spoke. Here's Martha, mother, cried the two young Cratchits. Hurrah! There's such a goose, Martha. Why, bless your heart alive, my dear, how late you are, said Mrs. Cratchit, kissing her a dozen times and taking off her shawl and bonnet for her with officious zeal. We'd a deal of work to finish up last night, replied the girl, and had to clear away this morning, mother. Well... "'Never mind so long as you come,' said Mrs. Cratchit. "'Sit ye down before the fire, my dear, and have a warm. "'Lord bless ye.' "'No, no, there's father coming,' cried the two young Cratchits, "'who were everywhere at once. "'Hide, Martha, hide!' "'So Martha hid herself, and in came little Bob, the father, "'with at least three feet of comforter exclusive of the fringe, "'hanging down before him, and his threadbare clothes, "'darned up and brushed, that looked seasonable, "'and Tiny Tim upon his shoulder. "'Alas for Tiny Tim!' He bore a little crutch, and had his limbs supported by an iron frame. "'Why, where's our Martha?' cried Bob Cratchit, looking round. "'Not coming,' said Mrs. Cratchit. "'Not coming,' said Bob, with a sudden declension in his high spirits, "'for he had been Tim's blood horse for all the way from church, "'and had come home rampant. "'Not coming upon Christmas Day!' Martha didn't like to see him disappointed. "'If it were only in joke, so she came out prematurely from behind the closet door,' and ran into his arms while the two young Cratchits hustled Tiny Tim and bore him off into the wash house that he might hear the pudding singing in the copper. And how did little Tim behave, asked Mrs. Cratchit, when she had rallied Bob on his credulity, and Bob had hugged his daughter to his heart's content. As good as gold, said Bob, and better. Somehow he gets thoughtful, sitting by himself so much, and thinks, the strangest things you ever heard. He told me coming home that he hoped the people saw him in church because he was a cripple and it might be pleasant to them to remember upon Christmas Day who made lame beggars walk and blind men see. Rob's voice was tremulous when he told them this and trembled more when he said that Tiny Tim was growing strong and hearty. His active little crutch was heard upon the floor and back came Tiny Tim before another word was spoken, escorted by his brother and sister to a stool before the fire. And while Bob, turning up his cuffs as if poor fellow, they are capable of being more than shabby. Compounded some hot mixture in a jug with gin and lemons, and stirred it round and round, and put it on the hob to simmer. Master Peter and the two ubiquitous young Cratchits went to fetch the goose, with which they soon returned in high procession. Such a bustle ensued that you might have thought a goose, the rarest of all birds, a feather phenomenon, to which a black swan was a matter of course. And in truth, it was something very like it in that house. Mrs. Cratchit made the gravy ready beforehand in a little saucepan, hissing hot. Master Peter mashed potatoes with incredible vigor. Miss Belinda sweetened up the applesauce. Martha dusted the hot plates. Bob took tiny Tim beside him in a tiny corner at the table. The two young Cratchits sat chairs for everybody, not forgetting themselves, and mounting guard upon their posts, crammed spoons into their mouths, lest they should shriek for goose before their turn came to be helped. At last, the dishes were set on, and Grace was said, It was succeeded by a breathless pause, as Mrs. Cratchit, looking slowly all along the carving knife, prepared to plunge it into the breast. But when she did, and when the long-expected gush of stuffing issued forth, one murmur of delight arose all around the board, and even Tiny Tim, excited by the two young Cratchits, beat on the table with the handle of his knife, and feebly cried, Hurrah! (laughs) There never was such a goose. Bob said he didn't believe there was ever such a goose cooked. Its tenderness and flavor, size and cheapness, were the themes of universal admiration. Eked out by applesauce and mashed potatoes, it was a sufficient dinner for the whole family indeed. As Mrs. Cratchit said with great delight, surveying the one atom of a bone upon the dish, they hadn't ate it all at last. Yet everyone had had enough, and the youngest Cratchits in particular were steeped in sage and onion to the eyebrows. But now, the plates being changed by Miss Belinda. Mrs. Cratchit left the room alone, too nervous to bear witness, to take the pudding up and bring it in. Suppose it should not be done enough. Suppose it should break in turning out. Suppose somebody should have got over the wall of the backyard and stolen it while they were merry with the goose, a supposition at which the two young Cratchits became livid. All sorts of horrors were supposed. Hello, a great deal of steam. The pudding was out of the copper. A smell like a washing day. That was the cloth, a smell like an eating house and a pastry cooks next door to each other with a laundress's next door to that. That was the pudding. In half a minute, Mrs. Cratchit entered, flushed, but smiling proudly, with the pudding like a speckled cannonball, so hard and firm, blazing in half a half a quartum of ignited brandy and bedite with Christmas holly stuck into the top. Oh, a wonderful pudding, Bob Cratchit said, and calmly, too that he regarded it as the greatest success achieved by Mrs. Cratchit since their marriage. Mrs. Cratchit said that now the weight was off her mind, she would confess she had had her doubts about the quantity of flour. Everybody had something to say about it, but nobody said or thought it was at all a small pudding for a large family. It would have been flat hearsay to do so. Any Cratchit would have blushed to hint at such a thing. At last the dinner was all done, the cloth was cleared, the hearth swept, the fire made up the compound in the jug being tasted and considered perfect. Apples and oranges were put upon the table and a shovel full of chestnuts on the fire. Then all the Cratchit family drew round the hearth in which Bob Cratchit called a circle, meaning half a one, and at Bob Cratchit's elbow stood the family display of glass, two tumblers, and a custard cup without a handle. These held the hot stuff from the jug, however, as well as golden goblets would have done and Bob served it out with beaming looks while chestnuts on the fire sputtered and cracked noisily. Then Bob proposed. A Merry Christmas to us all, my dears. God bless us, which all the family re-echoed. God bless us, everyone, said Tiny Tim, the last of all. He sat very close to his father's side upon his little stool. Bob held his withered little hand in his, as if he loved the child and wished to keep him by his side, and dreaded that he might be taken from him. Spirit, said Scrooge, with an interest that he had never felt before, tell me if Tiny Tim will live. I see a vacant seat, replied the ghost, in the poor chimney corner, in a crutch without an owner, carefully preserved. If these shadows remain unaltered by the future, the child will die. No, no, said Scrooge. Oh no, kind spirit, say you will be spared. If these shadows remain unaltered by the future, another of my race returned. The ghost will find him here. What then? If he be like to die, he had better do it and decrease the surplus population. Scrooge hung his head to hear his own words quoted by the spirit and was overcome with penitence and grief. Man, said the ghost, if man you be in heart, not adamant, forbear that wicked cant until you have discovered what the surplus is. And where it is. Will you decide what men shall live, what men shall die? It may be that in the sight of heaven, you are more worthless and less fit to live than millions like this poor man's child. Oh God, to hear the insect on the leaf pronouncing on the too much life among his hungry brothers in the dust. Scrooge bent before the ghost's rebuke and trembling cast his eyes upon the ground, but he raised them speedily on hearing his own name. Mr. Scrooge! said Bob. I'll give you Mr. Scrooge, the founder of the feast. The founder of the feast indeed, cried Mrs. Cratchit, reddening. I wish I had him here. I'd give him a piece of my mind to feast upon, and I hope he'd have a good appetite for it. My dear, said Bob, the children, Christmas Day. It should be Christmas Day, I am sure, said she, "on which one drinks the health of such an odious, stingy, hard, unfeeling man as Mr. Scrooge. You know he is, Robert. Nobody knows it better than you do, poor fellow. My dear, said Bob's mild answer, Christmas Day. I'll drink to his health for your sake in the days, said Mrs. Cratchit. Not for his. Long life to him. A Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year. He'll be very merry and very happy, I have no doubt. The children drank the toast after her. It was the first of their proceedings which had no heartiness. Tiny Tim drank it last of all, but he didn't care two pence for it. Scrooge was the ogre of the family. The mention of his name cast a dark shadow on the party, which was not dispelled for full five minutes. After he passed away, they were ten times merrier than before, from the mere relief of Scrooge the Baleful being done with. Bob Cratchit told them how he had a situation in his eye for Master Peter, which would bring in, if obtained, full five and sixpence weekly. The two young Cratchits laughed tremendously at the idea of Peter's being a man of business. And Peter himself looked thoughtfully at the fire from between his collars, as if he were deliberating with particular investments he should favor when he came into the receipt of that bewildering income. Martha, who was a poor apprentice at a milliner's, then told them what kind of work she had to do and how many hours she worked at a stretch and how she meant to lie in bed tomorrow morning for a good long rest. Tomorrow being a holiday, she passed at home. Also, how she had seen a countess and a lord some days before, and how the lord was much about as tall as Peter, at which Peter pulled up his collar so high that you couldn't have seen his head if he had been there. All this time, the chestnuts in the jug went round and round, and by and by, and they had a song about a lost child traveling in the snow from Tiny Tim, who had a plaintive little voice and sang it very well indeed. There was nothing of high mark in this. They were not a handsome family, they were not well-dressed, their shoes were far from being waterproof, their clothes were scanty, and Peter might have known, and very likely did, the inside of a pawnbroker's. But they were happy, grateful, pleased with one another, and consensual with the Tom. And when they faded, and looked happier, yet in the bright sparklings of the spirit's torch at parting, Scrooge had his eye upon them, and especially on Tiny Tim, until the last. By this time, it was getting dark, and snowing pretty heavily, and as Scrooge and his spirit went along the streets, the brightness of the roaring fires in the kitchens, parlors, and all sorts of rooms were wonderful. Here, flickering of the blaze showed preparations for a cozy dinner, with hot plates baking through and through before the fire, and deep red curtains ready to be drawn to shut out the cold and darkness. There, all the children of the house were running out into the snow to meet their married sisters, brothers, cousins, uncles, aunts, and be the first to greet them. Here, again, were shadows of the window blind of guest assembling. And there, a group of handsome girls, all hooded and fur booted, and all chattering at once, tripped lightly off to some near neighbor's house where, woe upon the single man who saw them enter, artful witches. Well, they knew it, a glow. But if you had judged from the numbers of people on their way to friendly gatherings, you might have thought that no one was at home to give them welcome when they got there instead of every house expecting company, and piling up its fires half chimney high, blessings on it, how the ghost exalted, how it bared its breath of breast, and opened its capacious palm, and floated on outpouring with a generous hand, its bright and harmless mirth on everything within reach. The very lamplighter, who ran on before, dotting the dusky street with specks of light, and who was dressed to spend the evening somewhere, laughed out loudly as the spirit passed, though little kin, the lamplighter, that he had any company but Christmas. And now, without a word of warning from the ghost, they stood upon a bleak and desert moor, where monstrous masses of rude stone were cast about, as though it were the burial place of giants, and water spread itself wherever so it listed, or would have done so, but for the frost that held it prisoner, and nothing grew but moss and furs and coarse rank grass. Down in the west, the setting sun had left a streak of fiery red, which glared upon the desolation for an instant, like a sullen eye, and frowning lower, 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 yet, was lost in the thick gloom of darkest night. What place is this? A place where miners live, who labor in the bowels of the earth, return the spirit. But they know me. See! A light shone from the windows of a hut, and swiftly they advanced toward it. Passing through the wall of mud and stone, they found a cheerful company assembled round a glowing fire. An old, old man and woman, with their children and their children's children, and another generation beyond that, all decked out gaily in their holiday attire. The old man, in a voice that seldom rose above the howling of the wind upon the barren waste, was singing them a Christmas song. It had been a very old song when he was a boy, and from time to time they all joined in the chorus. So surely, as they raised their voices, the old man got quite blith and loud, and so surely as they stopped, his vigor sank again. The spirit did not tarry here, but bade Scrooge hold his robe, and passing on above the moor, sped, Whither? Not to see? To see. To Scrooge's horror, looking back, he saw the last of the land, a frightful range of rocks behind them, and his ears were deafened by the thundering of water, as it rolled and roared, and raged among the dreadful caverns it had borne and fiercely tried to undermine the earth. Built upon a dismal reef of sunken rocks, some league or so from shore, on which the waters chafed and dashed, the wild year through, there stood a solitary lighthouse, great heaps of seaweed clung to its base, and storm birds, born of the wind one might suppose, as seaweed of the water rose and fell about it like the waves they skimmed. But even here, two men who watched the light had made a fire, that through the loophole in the thick stone wall shed out a ray of brightness on the awful sea. Joining their horny hands over the rough table at which they sat, they wished each other Merry Christmas in their can of grog. And one of them, the elder too, with his face all damaged and scarred with hard weather, as the figurehead of an old ship might be, struck up a sturdy song that was like a gale itself. Again the ghost sped on, above the black and heaving sea, on, on, Until being far away, as he told Scrooge, from any shore, they lighted on a ship. They stood beside the helmsman at the wheel, the lookout in the bow, the officers who had the watch, dark, ghostly figures in their several stations. But every man among them hummed the Christmas tune, or had a Christmas thought, or spoke below his breath to his companion of some bygone Christmas day, with homeward hopes belonging to it. And every man on board, waking or sleeping, good or bad, had had a kinder word for another on that day than on any day in the year, and had shared to some extent to, in its festivities and had remembered those he cared for at a distance, and had known they had delighted to remember him. It was a great surprise to Scrooge, while listening to the moaning of the wind, and thinking what a solemn thing it was to move on through the lonely darkness over an unknown abyss, whose depths were secrets as profound as death, it was a great surprise to Scrooge, while thus engaged to, to hear a hearty laugh. It was a much greater surprise to Scrooge to recognize it as his nephew's, and to find himself in a bright, dry, gleaming room, with the spirit standing, smiling by his side, and looking at that same nephew with approving affability. "Ha ha!" laughed Scrooge's nephew. "Ha ha ha!" If you should happen, by any unlikely chance, to know a man more blessed than a laugh, than Scrooge's nephew, all I can say is I should like to know him too. Introduce him to me, and I'll cultivate his acquaintance. It is a fair, even-handed, noble adjustment of things, that while there is infection and disease and sorrow, there is nothing in the world so irresistibly contagious as laughter and good humor. When Scrooge's nephew laughed in this way, holding his hands, rolling his head, and twisting his face into the most extravagant contortions, Scrooge's niece, by marriage, laughed as heartily as he, and their assembled friends, being not a bit behindhand, roared out lustily. <laughs> Ha, 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 ha. He said that Christmas was a humbug as I live, cried Scrooge's nephew. He believed it too. More shame for him, Fred, said Scrooge's niece indignantly. Bless those women. They never do anything by halves. They are always in earnest. She was very pretty, exceedingly pretty, with a dimpled, surprised-looking capital face, a ripe little mouth that seemed made to be kissed, as no doubt it was, all kinds of good little dots about her chin that melted into one another when she laughed, and the sunniest pair of eyes you ever saw in any little creature's head. Altogether, she was what you would have called provoking, you know, but satisfactory too. Oh, perfectly satisfactory. He's a comical old fellow, says Scrooge's nephew. That's the truth, and not so pleasant as he might be. However, his offenses carry their own punishment, and I have nothing to say against them. I'm sure he is very rich, Fred, hinted Scrooge's niece. At least you always tell me so. What of that, my dear, said Scrooge's nephew. His wealth is of no use to him. He doesn't do any good with it. He don't make himself comfortable with it. He hasn't the satisfaction of thinking (laughs) that he is ever going to benefit us with it. I have no patience with him, observed Scrooge's niece. Scrooge's niece's sisters and all the other ladies expressed the same opinion. Oh, I have, said Scrooge's nephew. I am sorry for him. I couldn't be angry with him if I tried. Who suffers by his ill wills? Himself, always. Here he takes it into his head to dislike us, and he won't come and dine with us. What's the consequence? He don't lose much of a dinner. Indeed, I think he loses a very good dinner, interrupted Scrooge's niece. Everybody else said the same, and they must be allowed to have been competent judges, because they had just had dinner, and with the dessert upon the table were clustered round the fire by lamplight. Well, I'm very glad to hear it, said Scrooge's nephew, because I haven't great faith in these housekeepers. What do you say, Topper? Topper clearly got his eye upon one of Scrooge's niece's sisters, for he answered that a bachelor was a wretched outcast who had no right to express an opinion on the subject, Whereat Scrooge's niece's sisters, the plump one with the lace tucker, not the one with the roses, blushed. (laughs) Do go on, Fred, says Scrooge's niece, clapping her hands. He never finishes what he begins to say. He is such a ridiculous fellow. Scrooge's nephew reveled in another laugh. And as if it was impossible to keep the infection off, though the plump sister tried hard to do it with aromatic vinegar, his example was unanimously followed. I was only going to say, said Scrooge's nephew, that the consequence of his taking a dislike to us and not making merry with us is, as I think that he loses some pleasant moments, which could do him no harm. I am sure he loses pleasanter companions than he can find in his own thoughts, either in his moldy old office or his dusty chambers. I mean to give him the same chance every year, whether he likes it or not, for I pity him. He may rail at Christmas till he dies, but he can't help thinking better of it. I defy him. If he finds me going there in good temper year after year and saying, Uncle Scrooge, how are you? If it only puts him in the vein to leave his poor clerk 50 pounds, that's something. And I think I shook him yesterday.
5: It was their turn to laugh at the notion of his shaking Scrooge, but being thoroughly good-natured and not much caring what they laughed at, so that they laughed at any rate, he encouraged them in their merriment, and passed the bottle joyously. After tea they had some music, for they were a musical family, and knew what they were about when they sung a glee or catch. I can assure you, especially Topper, who could growl away in the bass like a good one and never swell the large veins in his forehead, or get red in the face over it. Scrooge's niece played well upon the harp, and played, among other tunes, in a simple little air, a mere nothing you might learn to whistle it in two minutes, which had been familiar to the child who fetched Scrooge from the boarding-school, as he had been reminded by the ghost of Christmas past. When this strain of music sounded, All the things the ghost had shown him came upon his mind. He softened more and more, and thought that if he could have listened to it often, years ago, he might have cultivated the kindnesses of life for his own happiness with his own hands, without resorting to the sexton spade that buried Jacob Marley. But they didn't devote the whole evening to music. After a while they played at forfeits, For it's good to be children sometimes, and never better than at Christmas, when its mighty founder was a child himself. Stop! There was first a game at Blind Man's Bluff. Of course there was. And I no more believe Topper was really blind than I believe he had eyes in his boots. My opinion is that it was done between him and Scrooge's nephew that the ghost of Christmas present knew it. The way he went after the plump sister in the lace tucker was an outrage on the credulity of human nature. Knocking down the fire-irons, tumbling over the chairs, bumping against the piano, smothering himself among the curtains—whether she went, there he went. He always knew where the plump sister was. He wouldn't catch anybody else if you had fallen up against him, as some of them did, on purpose. He would have made a faint endeavouring to seize you, which would have been an affront to your understanding, and would instantly have sidled off in the direction of the plump sister. He often cried out that it wasn't fair, and it really was not. But when at last he caught her, when, in spite of all her silken rustling and her rapid flutterings passed him, he got her into a corner whence there was no escape, then his conduct was most execrable for his pretending not to know her, his pretending that it was necessary to touch her headdress, and further to assure himself of her identity by pressing a certain ring upon her finger, and a certain chain about her neck, was vile, monstrous. No doubt she told him her opinion of it, when, another blind man in office, they were so very confidential together behind the curtains. Scrooge's niece was not one of the blind man's bluff party, but was made comfortable, "'with a large chair and a footstool in a snug corner "'with a ghost and Scrooge were close behind her. "'But she joined with the forfeits "'and loved to love to admiration "'with all the letters of the alphabet. "'Likewise, at the game of how, when, and where, "'she was very great, "'and the secret joy of Scrooge's nephew "'beat her sisters hollow, "'though they were sharp girls too, "'as Topper could have told you. There might have been twenty people there, young and old, but they all played, and so did Scrooge, for wholly forgetting in the interest he had in what was going on, that his voice made no sound in their ears, he sometimes came out with his guess quite loud, and was very often guessed quite right, too, for the sharpest needle, best Whitechapel, warranted not to cut in the eye, was not sharper than Scrooge, blunt as he took it in his head to be. The ghost was greatly pleased to find him in this mood, and looked upon him with such favour, that he begged like a boy to be allowed to stay until the guest departed, but this, the spirit said, could not be done. Here is a new game, said Scrooge. One half-hour, spirit, only one. It was a game called Yes and No, where Scrooge's nephew had to think of something, and the rest must find out what. He, only answering their questions, with Yes Oh no, as the case was. The brisk fire of questioning to which he was exposed elicited from him what he was thinking of an animal, a live animal, rather a disagreeable animal, a savage animal, an animal that growled and grunted sometimes, and talked sometimes, and lived in London, and walked about the streets, and wasn't made a show of, and wasn't led by anybody, and didn't live in a menagerie, and was never killed in a market, and was not a horse, or an ass or a cow, or a bull, or a tiger, or a dog, or a pig, or a cat, or a bear. At every fresh question that was put to him, this nephew burst into a fresh roar of laughter, and was so inexpressibly tickled that he was obliged to get up from the sofa and stamp. At last the plump sister, falling into a similar state, cried out, "'I have found it out! I know what it is, Fred! I know what it is!' "'What is it?' cried Fred. "'It's your Uncle Scrooge!' Which it certainly was. Admiration was the universal sentiment, though some objected that the reply to, "'Is it a bear?' ought to have been yes." inasmuch as an answer in the negative was sufficient to have diverted their thoughts from Mr. Scrooge, supposing they had ever had any tendency that way. "'He has given us plenty of merriment, I am sure,' said Fred, "'and it would be ungrateful not to drink to his health. Here is a glass of mulled wine, ready to our hand at the moment, and I say, Uncle Scrooge!' "'Well, Uncle Scrooge!' they cried. A Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year to the old man, whatever he is," said Scrooge's nephew. He wouldn't take it from me, but may he have it nevertheless. Uncle Scrooge. Uncle Scrooge had imperceptibly become so gay and light of heart that he would have pledged the unconscious company in return, and thanked them in an unaudible speech, if the ghost had given him time but the whole scene passed, and the breath of the last word spoken by his nephew, and he and the spirit were again upon their travels. Much they saw, and far they went, and many homes they visited, but always with a happy ending. The spirits stood beside sick beds, and they were very cheerful, on foreign lands, and they were close at home, by struggling men, and they were patient in their greater hope by poverty, and it was rich, an almshouse, hospital, and jail, where misery and its every refuge, where vain man in his little brief authority had not made fast the door and barred the spirit out, he left his blessing and taught Scrooge his precepts. It was a long night, if it were only a night, but Scrooge, had his doubts of this, because the Christmas holidays appeared to be condensed into the space of time they passed together. It was strange, too, that while Scrooge remained unaltered in his outward form, the ghosts grew older, clearly older. Scrooge had observed his change, but never spoke of it, until they left the children's twelfth-night party, when, looking at the spirit, as they stood together in an open place, He noticed its hair was grey. Are spirits lives so short? asked Scrooge. My life upon this globe is very brief, replied the ghost. It ends to-night. To-night? cried Scrooge. To-night at midnight. Hark! The time is drawing near. The chimes were ringing, the three-quarters past eleven at the moment. "'Forgive me if I'm not justified in what I ask,' said Scrooge, looking intently at the spirit's robe. "'But I see something strange and not belonging to yourself protruding from your skirts. Is it a foot or a claw?' "'It might be a claw for the fresh. Here is upon it.' was the spirit's sorrowful reply. Look here. From the folding of its robe, it brought two children, wretched, abject, frightful, hideous, miserable. They knelt at its feet and clung upon the outside of its garment. Oh, man, look here. Look, look down here, exclaimed the ghost. They were a boy, and a girl, yellow, meager, ragged, scowling, wolfish, but prostrate, too, in their humility. Where graceful youth should have filled their features out and touched them with its freshest tints, a stale and shriveled hand, like that of age, had pinched and twisted them and pulled them into shreds. Where angels might have sat enthroned, devils lurked and glared out menacing. No change, no degradation, no perversion of humanity in any grade, through all the mysteries of wonderful creation, has monsters half so dreadful and horrible. Scrooge started back appalled. Having them shown to him in this way, he tried to say they were fine children, but the words choked themselves rather than be parties to a lie of such enormous magnitude. Spirit! "'Are they yours?' Scrooge could say no more. "'They are man's,' said the spirit, looking down upon them, "'and they cling to me, appealing from their fathers. "'This boy is ignorance. This girl is want. "'Beware them both, and all of their degree, "'But most of all, beware this boy.' FOR ON HIS BROW I SEE THAT WRITTEN WHICH IS DOOM, UNLESS THE WRITING BE ERASED. DENY IT, CRIED THE SPIRIT, STRETCHING OUT ITS HAND toward THE CITY. SLANDER THOSE WHO TELL IT TO YE. ADMIT FROM YOUR FACTITIOUS PURPOSES, AND MAKE IT WORSE, AND BIDE THE END. HAVE I NO REFUGE OR RESOURCE? cried Scrooge. "'Are there no prisons?' said the spirit, turning on him for the first time with his own words. "'Are there no workhouses?' The bell struck twelve. Scrooge looked about him from the ghost, and saw it not. As the last stroke ceased to vibrate, he remembered the prediction of old Jacob Marley, and lifting up his eyes, beheld a solemn phantom, draped and hooded, coming like a mist along the ground toward him. The last of the spirits. The phantom slowly, gravely, silently approached. When it came near him, Scrooge bent down upon his knee, for in the very air through which this spirit moved, it seemed to scatter gloom and mystery. It was shrouded in a deep black garment, which concealed its head, its face, its form, and left nothing of it visible save one outstretched hand. But for this, it would have been difficult to detach its figure from the night, and separate it from the darkness by which it was surrounded. He felt that it was tall and stately when it came beside him, and that its mysterious presence filled him with a solemn dread. He knew no more, for the spirit never spoke nor moved. "'I am in the presence of the ghost of Christmas yet to come,' said Scrooge. The spirit answered not, but pointed onward with its hand. "'You are about to show me shadows of the things that have not happened, but will happen in the time before us,' Scrooge pursued. "'Is that so, spirit?' The upper portion of the garment was contracted for an instant in its folds, as if the spirit had inclined its head. That was the only answer he received. Although well used to ghostly company by this time, Scrooge feared the silent shape so much that his legs trembled beneath him, and he found that he could hardly stand when he was prepared to follow it. The spirit paused for a moment in observing his condition and giving time to recover. But Scrooge was all the worse for this. It thrilled him with vague, uncertain horror to know that behind the dusky shroud there were ghostly eyes intently fixed upon him, while he, though he stretched out his own to the utmost, could see nothing but a spectral hand and one great heap of black. "'Ghost of the future!' he exclaimed. "'I fear you more than any spectre I have seen. BUT AS I KNOW YOUR PURPOSE IS TO DO ME GOOD, AND AS I HOPE TO LIVE TO BE ANOTHER MAN FROM WHAT I WAS, I AM PREPARED TO BEAR YOU COMPANY, AND DO IT WITH A THANKFUL HEART. WILL YOU NOT SPEAK TO ME?" IT GAVE HIM NO REPLY. THE HAND WAS POINTED STRAIGHT BEFORE THEM. LEAD ON, SAID SCROOGE. LEAD ON. THE NIGHT IS WANING FAST. It is precious time to me, I know. Lead on, spirit! The phantom moved as it had come toward him. Scrooge followed in the shadow of its dress, which bore him up, he thought, and carried him away. They scarcely seemed to enter the city, for the city rather seemed to spring up about them and encompass them of its own act. But there they were, in the heart of it, on chains amongst the merchants, who hurried up and down, and chinked the money in their pockets, and conversed in groups, and looked at their watches, and trifled thoughtfully with their great gold seals, and so forth, as Scrooge had seen them often. The spirit stopped beside one little knot of businessmen. Observing that the hand was pointed to them, Scrooge advanced to listen to their talk. "'No!' said a great fat man with a monstrous chin. I don't know much about it, either way. I only know he's dead." "'When did he die?' inquired another. "'Last night, I believe.' "'Why, what was the matter with him?' asked the third, taking a vast quantity of snuff out of a very large snuff-box. "'I thought he'd never die.' Uh, "'God knows!' said the first with a yawn. "'What has he done with his money?' asked a red-faced gentleman with a pendulous excrescence on the end of his nose that shook like the gills of a turkey-cock. I have it (sighs) heard, said the man with the large chin, yawning again. Left it to his company, perhaps. He hasn't left it to me, that's all I know. This pleasantry was received with a general laugh. It's likely to be a very cheap funeral, said the same speaker, for upon my life I don't know of anybody to go to it. "'Suppose we make up a party and volunteer?' "'I don't mind going if lunch is provided,' observed the gentleman with the excrescence on his nose. "'But I must be fit if I make one.'
6: Another laugh. "'Well, I am the most disinterested among you, after all,' said the first speaker, "'for I never wear black gloves, and I never eat lunch. "'But I'll offer to go if anybody else will.' When I come to think of it, I'm not at all sure that I wasn't his most particular friend, for we used to stop and speak whenever we met. Bye-bye. Speakers and listeners strolled away and mixed with other groups. Scrooge knew the men and looked toward the spirit for an explanation. The phantom glided onto a street, its finger pointed to two persons meeting. Scrooge listened again, thinking that the explanation might lie here. He knew these men also perfectly. They were men of business, very wealthy, and of great importance. He had made a point of always standing well in their esteem, in a business point of view that is, strictly in a business point of view. How are you, said one. How are you, returned the other. Well, said the first, old Scratch has got his own at last, hey? So I am told, returned the second. Cold, isn't it? Seasonable for Christmas time. You're not a skater, I suppose. No, no, something else to think of. Good morning. Not another word. That was their meeting, their conversation, and their parting. Scrooge was at first inclined to be surprised that the spirit should attach importance to conversations apparently so trivial. But feeling assured that they must have some hidden purpose, he set himself to consider what it was likely to be. They could scarcely be supposed to have any bearing on the death of Jacob, his old partner, for that was past, and this ghost's province was the future. Nor could he think of anyone immediately connected with himself, to whom he could apply them. But nothing doubting that to whomsoever they applied they had some latent moral for his own improvement. He resolved to treasure up every word he heard and everything he saw, and especially to observe the shadow of himself when it appeared. For he had an explanation that the conduct of his future self would give him the clue he missed, and would render the solution of these riddles easy. He looked about in that very place for his own image, but another man stood in his accustomed corner, and though the clock pointed to his usual time of day for being there, he saw no likeness of himself among the multitudes that poured in through the porch. It gave him little surprise, however, for he had been revolving in his mind a change of life, and thought and hoped he saw his newborn resolutions carried out in this. Quiet and dark beside him stood the phantom, with its outstretched hand. When he roused himself from his thoughtful quest, he fancied from the turn of the hand and its situation in reference to himself that the unseen eyes were looking at him keenly. It made him shudder and feel very cold. They left the busy scene and went into an obscure part of the town, where Scrooge had never penetrated before although he recognized its situation and its bad repute. The ways were foul and narrow, the shops and houses wretched, the people half-naked, drunken, slipshod, ugly. Alleys and archways, like so many cesspools, disgorged their offenses of smell and dirt and life upon the straggling streets, and the whole quarter reeked with crime, with filth and misery. Far in this den of infamous resort, there was a low-browed beetling shop, below a penthouse roof, where iron, old rags, bottles, bones, and greasy offal were brought. Upon the floor within were piled up heaps of rusty keys, nails, chains, hinges, files, scales, weights, and refuse iron of all kinds. Secrets that few would like to scrutinize were bred and hidden in mountains of unseemly rags, masses of corrupted fat, and sepulchres of bones. Sitting in among the wares he dealt in by a charcoal stove made of old bricks was a gray-haired rascal, nearly 70 years of age, who had screened himself from the cold air without, by a frowzy curtaining of miscellaneous tatters, hung upon a line, and smoked his pipe in all the luxury of calm retirement. Scrooge and the Phantom came into the presence of this man just as a woman with a heavy bundle slunk into the shop. But she had scarcely entered when another woman, similarly laden, came in too, and she was closely followed by a man in faded black who was no less startled by the sight of them than they had been upon the recognition of each other. After a short period of blank astonishment, in which the old man with the pipe had joined them, they all three burst into a laugh. Let the charwoman alone to be the first, cried she who had entered first. Let the laundress alone to be the second, and let the undertaker's man alone to be the third. Look here, old Joe, here's a chance, if we haven't all three met here without meaning it. You couldn't have met in a better place, said old Joe, removing his pipe from his mouth. Come into the parlor. You were made free of it long ago, you know, and the other two ain't strangers. Stop till I shut the door of the shop. Ah, how it shrieks. There ain't such a rusty bit of metal in the place as its own hinges, I believe, and I'm sure there's no such old bones here as mine. (laughs) Ha ha. We're all suitable to our calling. We're well matched. Come into the parlor. Come into the parlor. The parlor was the space behind the screen of rags. The old man raked the fire together with an old stair rod, and having trimmed his smoky lamp, for it was night, with the sum of his pipe, put it in his mouth again. While he did this, the woman who had already spoken threw her bundle on the floor and sat down in a flaunting manner on a stool, crossing her elbows on her knees and looking with a bold defiance at the other two. What odds, then? What odds, Mrs. Dilber, said the woman. Every person has a right to take care of themselves. He always did. That's true indeed, said the laundress. No man more so. Why then, don't stand staring as if you were afraid, woman. Who's the wiser? We're not going to pick holes in each other's coats, I suppose. No, indeed, said Mrs. Dilber and the man together. We should hope not. Very well, then, cried the woman. That's enough. Who's the worse for the loss of a few things like these? Not a dead man, I suppose. No, indeed, said Mrs. Dilber, laughing. If he wanted to keep him after he was dead, a wicked old screw, pursued the woman, why wasn't he natural in his lifetime? If he had been, he'd have somebody to look after him when he was struck with death, instead of lying gasping out his last there, alone by himself. It's the truest word that was ever spoke, said Mrs. Dilber. It's a judgment on him. I wish it was a little heavier judgment, replied the woman, and it should have been. You may depend on it, if I could have laid my hands on anything else. Open that bundle, old Joe, and let me know the value of it. Speak out plain. I'm not afraid to be the first, nor afraid for them to see it. We know pretty well that we were helping ourselves before we met here, I believe. It's no sin. Open the bundle, Joe. But the gallantry of her friends would not allow of this, and the man in faded black, mounting the breech first, produced his plunder. It was not extensive. A seal or two, a pencil case, a pair of sleeve buttons, and a brooch of no great value were all. They were severally examined and appraised by old Joe, who chalked up the sums as he was disposed to give for each upon the wall, and added them up into a total when he found there was nothing more to come. That's your account, said Joe, and I wouldn't give another sixpence if I was to be boiled for not doing it. Who's next? Mrs. Dilber was next. Sheets and towels, a little wearing apparel, two old-fashioned silver teaspoons, a pair of sugar tongs, and a few boots. Her account was slated on the wall in the same manner. I always give too much to ladies. It's a weakness of mine, and that's the way I ruin myself, said old Joe. That's your account. If you asked me for another penny and I made it an open question, I'd repent of being so liberal and knock off half a crown. And now onto my bundle, Joe, said the first woman. Joe went down on his knees for the greater convenience of opening it, and having unfastened a great many knots, dragged out a large and heavy roll of some dark stuff. What do you call this, said Joe? Bed curtains. Ah, returned the woman, laughing and leaning forward on her crossed arms. Bed curtains. You don't mean to say you took them down rings and all with him lying there, said Joe. Yes, I do, replied the woman. Why not? You were born to make your fortune, said Joe, and you'll certainly do it. I certainly shan't hold my hand when I can get anything in it by reaching it out for the sake of such a man as he was, I promise you, Joe, returned the woman coolly. Don't drop that oil upon the blankets now. His blankets? asked Joe. Whose else do you think, replied the woman. He isn't likely to take cold without em, I dare say. I hope he didn't die of catching anything, eh? said old Joe, stopping in his work and looking up. Don't you be afraid of that, returned the woman. I ain't so fond of his company that I'd loiter about him for such things if he did. Ah, you may look through that shirt till your eyes ache, but you won't find a hole in it, nor a threadbare place. It's the best he had, and a fine one, too. They'd have wasted it if it hadn't been for me. What do you call wasting of it? asked old Joe. Putting it on him to be buried in, to be sure, replied the woman with a laugh. Somebody was fool enough to do it, but I took it off again. If Calico ain't good enough for such a purpose, it isn't good enough for anything. It's quite as becoming to the body. He can't look uglier than he did in that one. Scrooge listened to this dialogue in horror. As they sat grouped about their spoil in the scantly light afforded by the old man's lamp, he viewed them with a detestation and disgust which could hardly have been greater, though they had been obscene demons marketing the corpse itself. Ha! Ha! Laughed the same woman when old Joe, producing a flannel bag with money in it, told out their several gains upon the ground. This is the end of it, you see. He was frightened every one away from him when he is alive to profit us when he was dead. Ha! 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 Spirit said Scrooge, shuddering from head to foot. I see. I see. The case of this unhappy man might be my own. My life tends that way now! Merciful heaven, what is this? He recoiled in terror, for the scene had changed, and now he almost touched a bed, a bare, uncurtained bed, on which, beneath a ragged sheet, there lay a something covered up, which, though it was dumb, announced itself in awful language. The room was very dark, too dark to be observed with any accuracy, though Scrooge glanced around it in obedience to a secret impulse, anxious to know what kind of room it was. A pale light rising in the outer air fell straight upon the bed, and on it, plundered and bereft, unwatched, Unwept, uncared for, was the body of this man.
7: Scrooge glanced towards the phantom. Its steady hand was pointed to the head. The cover was so caressly adjusted that the slightest raising of it, the motion of a finger upon Scrooge's part, would have disclosed the face. He thought of it, felt how easy it would be to do, and longed to do it but had no more power to withdraw the veil than to dismiss the specter at his side. O cold, cold, rigid, dreadful death, set up thine altar here, and dress it with such terrors that thou hast at thy command, for this is thy dominion. But of the loved, revered, and honored head thou canst not turn one hair to thy dread purposes or make one feature odious it is not that the hand is heavy and will fall down when released it is not that the heart and pulse are still but that the hand was open generous and true the heart brave warm and tender and the pulses a man's strike shadow strike and see his good deeds springing from the wound, to sow the world with life immortal. No voice pronounced these words in Scrooge's ears, and yet he heard them when he looked upon the bed. He thought, if this man could be raised up now, what would his foremost thoughts? Averse, hard dealing, gripping, cares? They have brought him to a rich end, truly. He lay in the dark, empty house, with not a man, a woman, or a child to say he was kind to me in this or that, and for the memory of one kind word, I will be kind to him. A cat was tearing at the door, and there was a sound of gnawing rats beneath the hearthstone. What they wanted in the room of death, and why they were so restless and disturbed, Scrooge did not dare to think. Spirit, he said, this is a fearful place. In leaving it, I shall not leave its lesson. Trust me, let us go. Still the ghost pointed with an unmoved finger to the head. I understand you, Scrooge returned, and I would do it if I could. But I have not the power, spirit. I have not the power. Again, it seemed to look upon him. If there is any person in the town who feels emotion caused by this man's death, said Scrooge, quite agonized, show that person to me, spirit. I beseech you. The phantom spread its dark robe before him for a moment, like a wing, and withdrawing it, revealed a room by daylight, where a mother and her child were. She was expecting someone, and with anxious eagerness, for she walked up and down the room, startled at every sound looked out from the window glanced at the clock tried but in vain to work with her needle and could hardly bear the voices of the children in their play at the length the long expected knock was heard she hurried to the door and met her husband a man whose face was careworn and depressed though he was young there was a remarkable expression in it now, a kind of serious delight of what she felt ashamed and which he struggled to repress. He sat down to the dinner that had been hoarding for him by the fire, and when she asked him faintly what news, which was not until after a long silence, he appeared embarrassed how to answer. Is it good, she said, or bad to help him? Bad, he answered. We are quite ruined. No, there is hope yet, Caroline. If he relents, she said, amazed, there is. Nothing is past hope, if such a miracle that happened. He is past relenting, said her husband. He is dead. She was a mild and patient creature if her face spoke the truth, but she was thankful in her soul to hear it, and she said so with clasped hands. She prayed forgiveness the next moment, and was sorry, but the first was the emotion of her heart. What the half-drunken woman who I told told of you last night said to me when I tried to see him and obtain a week's delay, and what I thought was a mere excuse to avoid him, turns out to have been quite true. He was not only very ill, but dying then. To whom will our debt be transferred? I don't know. But before that time, we shall be ready with the money, and even though we are not, it would be a bad fortune, indeed, to find a merciless a creditor in his successor. You may sleep tonight with light hearts, Caroline. Yes, soften as they would, their hearts were lighter, the children's faces hutched and cluttered round to hear what they were so little understood were brighter and it was a happier house for this man's death the only emotion that the ghost could show him caused by the event was one of pleasure let me see some tenderness connected with a death said scrooge or that dark chamber spirit which we left just now will be forever present to me The ghost conducted him through several streets familiar to his feet, and as they went along, Scrooge looked here and there to find himself, but nowhere was to be seen. They entered poor Bob Cratchit's house, the dwelling he had visited before, and found the mother and children seated round the fire. Quiet, very quiet. The noisy little Cratchits were as still as statues in one corner, and sat looking up at Peter, who had a book before him. The mother and her daughters were engaged in sewing, but surely they were very quiet. And he took a child and set him in the midst of them. Where had Scrooge heard those words? He had not dreamed them. The boy must have read them out, as he and the spirit crossed the threshold. Why did he not go on? The mother laid her work upon the table and put her hand up to her face. The color hurts my eyes, she said. The color? Ah, poor Tiny Tim. They're better now again, said Cratchit's wife. It makes them weak by candlelight, and I wouldn't show weak eyes for your father when he comes home for the world. It must be near his time. Past it, rather, Peter answered, shutting up his book but I think he has walked a little slower than he used these few last evenings, mother. They were very quiet again. At last, she said, and in a steady, cheerful voice that one faltered once. I have known him walk with Tiny Tim upon his shoulder, very fast indeed, and so have I, cried Peter, often. And so have I, exclaimed another, so had all but he was very light to carry she resumed intent upon her work and his father loved him so that it was no trouble no trouble and there is your father at the door she hurried out to meet him and the little bob and his comforter he had need of it poor fellow came in his tea was ready for him on the hob and they all tried who should help him to it most Then the two young Cratchits got upon his knees and laid, his child a little cheek against his face, as they said, Don't mind it, father. Don't be grieved. Bob was very cheerful with them and spoke pleasantly to all the family. He looked at the work upon the table and praised the industry and speed of Mrs. Cratchit and the gifts. They would be done long before Sunday, he said. Sunday? You went to the day, then, Robert, said his wife. Yes, my dear, returned Bob. I wish you could have gone. It would have done you good to see how green a place it is, but you'll see it often. I promised him that I would walk there on a Sunday. My little, little child, cried Bob. My little child. He broke down all at once. He couldn't help it. If he could have helped it, he and his child would have been further apart, perhaps, than they were. He left the room and went up the stairs into the room above, which was lighted cheerfully and hung with Christmas. There was a chair set close beside the child, and there were signs of someone having been there lately. Poor Bob sat down in it, and when he had thought a little and composed himself, he kissed the little face. He was reconciled to what had happened and went down again quite happy. They drew about the fire and talked, the girls and mother working still. Bob told them of the extraordinary kindness of Mr. Scrooge's nephew, whom he had scarcely seen but once, and who, meeting him in the street that day and seeing that he looked a little, just a little down, you know, said Bob, inquired what had happened to distress him. A witch, said Bob, for he is the pleasant-spoken gentleman you have ever heard. I told him, I am heartily sorry for it, Mr. Cratchit, he said, and heartily sorry for your good wife. By the by, how he ever knew that, I don't know. Knew what, my dear? Why, that you were a good wife, replied Bob? Everybody knows that, said Peter. Very well observed, my boy, cried Bob. I hope they do. Heartily sorry, he said, for your good wife. If I can be of service to you in any way, he said, giving me his card, that's where I live. Pray come to me. Now it wasn't, cried Bob, for the sake of anything he might be able to do for us, for as much as his kind way, that this was quite delightful. It really seemed as if he had known our tiny Tim and felt with us. I'm sure he's a good soul, said Mrs. Cratchit. You would be sure of it, my dear, returned Bob. If you saw and spoke to him, I shouldn't be all that surprised. Mark what I say, if he got Peter a better situation. Only hear that, Peter, said Mrs. Cratchit, and then cried one of the girls. Peter will be keeping company with someone and setting up for himself. Get along with you, reported Peter, grinning. "Is just as likely as not, said Bob. One of these days, though there's plenty of time for that, my dear. But however and whenever we part from one another, I am sure we shall none of us forget poor tiny Tim, shall we? Or this first parting that there was among us? Never, father, cried they all. And I know, said Bob, I know, my dears, and then we recollect how patient and how mild he was, although he was a little, little child. We shall not quarrel easily among ourselves and forget poor Tiny Tim in doing it. No, never, father, they all cried again. I am very happy, said Little Bob. I am very happy. Mrs. Cratchit kissed him. His daughters kissed him. The two young Cratchits kissed him. And Peter and himself shook hands. The spirit of Tiny Tim, thy childish essence from God.
8: Spectre, said Scrooge, something informs me that our parting moment is at hand. I know it, but I know not how. Tell me what man that was whom he saw lying dead. The ghost of Christmas yet to come conveyed him, as before, though at a different time, he thought. Indeed, there seemed no order in these latter visions, save that they were in the future, into the resorts of business men, but showed him not himself. Indeed, the spirit did not stay for anything, but went straight on, as to the end just now desired, until besought by Scrooge to tarry for a moment. This court, said Scrooge, through which we hurry now, is where my place of occupation is, and has been for a length of time. I see the house. Let me behold what I shall be in days to come. The spirit stopped, the hand was pointed elsewhere. The house is yonder, Scrooge exclaimed. Why do you point away? The annex finger underwent no change. Scrooge hastened to the window of his office and looked in. It was an office still, but not his. The furniture was not the same, and the figure in the chair was not himself. The phantom pointed as before. He joined it once again, and wondering why and whither he had gone, accompanied it until they reached an iron gate. He paused to look round before entering a churchyard. Here then, the wretched man whose name he had now to learn lay underneath the ground. It was a worthy place, walled in by houses, overrun by grass and weeds, and growth of vegetation's death, not life, choked up with too much burying. Thy with repleted appetite. A worthy place. The spirit stood among the graves and pointed down to one. He advanced toward it trembling. The phantom was exactly as it had been. But he dreaded that he saw new meaning in its solemn shape. Before I draw nearer to that stone to which you point, said Scrooge, answer me one question. Are these the shadows of the things that will be, or are they shadows of the things that may be only? Still, the ghost pointed downward to the grave by which it stood. Men's courses will foreshadow certain ends to which, if preserved in, they must lead, said Scrooge. But if the courses be departed from, the ends will change. Say it is thus with what you show me. The spirit was immovable as ever. Scrooge crept toward it, trembling as he went, and following the finger, read upon the stone of the neglected grave. His own name, Ebenezer Scrooge. Am I the man who lay upon the bed? He cried upon his knees. The finger pointed from the grave to him and back again. No, spirit. Oh, no, no. The finger was still there. Spirit, he cried, tight clutching at its rope. Hear me. I am not the man I was. I would not be the man I must have been but for this intercourse. Why show me this, if I am past all hope? For the first time the hand appeared to shake. Good spirit, he pursued, as down upon the ground he fell before it. Your nature intercedes for me and pities me. Assure me that I yet may change these shadows you have shown me by an altered life. The kind hand trembled. I will honor Christmas in my heart and try to keep it all the year. I will live in the past, the present, and the future. The spirits of all three shall strive within me. I will not shit out the lessons that they teach. Oh, tell me I may sponge away the writing on this stone. In his agony, he caught the spectral hand. It sought to free itself, but he was strong in his entreaty and detained it. The spirit, stronger yet, repulsed him. Holding up his hand in the last prayer to have his fate reversed, he saw an alteration in the phantom's hood and dress. It shrunk, collapsed, and dwindled down into a bedpost. The End of It Yes, and the bedpost was his own. The bed was his own. The room was his own. Best and happiest of all, the time before him was his own. To make amends in. I will live in the past, the present, and the future, Scrooge repeated, as he scrambled out of bed. The spirits of all three shall strive in me. O oh, Jacob Marley, heaven in the Christmas time be praised for this. I say it on my knees, O oh, Jacob, on my knees. He was so fluttered and so glowing with his good intentions that his broken voice would scarcely answer to his call. He had been sobbing violently in his conflict with the spirit, and his face was wet with tears. They are not torn down, cried Scrooge, folding one of his bed curtains in his arms. They are not torn down, rings and all. They are here. I am here. The shadows of the things that would have been may be dispelled. They will be. I know they will. His hands were busy with the garments all this time, turning them inside out, putting them on upside down, tearing them, mislaying them, making them parties to be every kind of extravagance. "'I don't know what to do,' cried Scrooge, laughing and crying in the same breath, making a perfect leacquan of himself with his stockings. "'I am as light as a feather. I am as happy as an angel. I am as merry as a schoolboy. I am as giddy as a drunken man. A Merry Christmas to everybody and Happy New Year to all the world. "'Hello there!' "'Whoop!' "'Hello there!' He had frisked into his sitting room, It was now standing there, perfectly winded. Here's the saucepan that the gruel was in, cried Scrooge, starting off again and going around the fireplace. There's a door by which the ghost of Jacob Marley entered. There's a corner where the ghost of Christmas past sat. There's a window where I saw wandering spirits. That's all right. That's all true. It all happened. (laughs) Really, for a man who had been out of practice for so many years, it was a splendid laugh. A most illustrious laugh. The father of a long, long line of brilliant laughs. I don't know what day of month it is, said Scrooge. I don't know how long I've been among the spirits. I don't know anything. I'm quite a baby. Never mind. I don't care. I'd rather be a baby. Hello. Whoop. Hello here. He was checked in his transports by the churches ringing out the lustiest peals he had ever heard. Clash. Clang, hammer, ding, dong, bell, bell, dong, ding, hammer, clang, clash. Oh, glorious, glorious. Running to the window, he opened it and put out his head. No fog, no mist. Clear, bright, jovial, staring, cold. Cold, piping for the blood to dance to. Golden sunlight, heavenly sky sweet, fresh air, merry bells. Oh, glorious, glorious. What's today? Scrooge cried, calling downward to a boy in Sunday clothes who perhaps had loitered in to look about him. Eh? returned the boy with all his might of wonder. What's today, my fine fellow? said Scrooge. Today, the boy replied. Why, Christmas Day. It's Christmas Day, said Scrooge to himself. I haven't missed it. The spirits have done it all in one night. They can do anything they like. Of course they can. Of course they can. Hello, my fine fellow. Hello, returned the boy. Do you know the poultrys in the next street but one at the corner? Scrooge inquired. I should hope I did, replied the lad. An intelligent boy, said Scrooge. A remarkable boy. Do you know whether they've sold the prize circuit that's hanging up there? Not the little prize circuit, the big one. "'What, the one as big as me?' returned the boy. "'What a delightful boy,' said Scrooge. "'It's a pleasure to talk to him. "'Yes, my buck.' "'It's hanging there now,' replied the boy. "'Is it?' said Scrooge. "'Go and buy it.' "'Walker,' exclaimed the boy. "'No, no,' said Scrooge. "'I'm in earnest. "'Go buy it and tell him to bring it here, "'that I may give him the directions where to take it. "'Come back with the man, and I'll give you a shilling.' Come back home in less than five minutes and I'll give you half a crown. The boy was off like a shot. He must have had a steady hand at a trigger who could have got a shot off half so fast. I'll send it to Bob Cratchits, whispered Scrooge, rubbing his hand, splitting with a laugh. He shan't know who sent it. It's twice the size of Tiny Tim. Joe Miller never made such a joke as sending it to Bob's will be. The hand in which he wrote the address was not a steady one. But righty he did somehow, and went downstairs to open the street door, ready for the coming of the poulterer's man. As he stood there, waiting his arrival, the knocker caught his eye. I shall love it as long as I live, cried Scrooge, patting it with his hand. I scarcely ever looked at it before. What an honest expression it has in its face! It's a wonderful knocker. Here's a turkey. Hello, whoop. How are you? Merry Christmas. It was a turkey. That never could have stood upon its legs, that bird. He would have snapped them off short in a minute like sticks of sealing wax. Why, it's impossible to carry that to Camden town, said Scrooge. You must have a cab. The chuckle with which he said this, and the chuckle with which he paid for the turkey, and the chuckle with which he paid for the cab, and the chuckle with which he recompensated the boy, were only... To be exceeded by the chuckle with which he sat down breathless in his chair again and chuckled until he cried shaving was not an easy task for his hand continued to shake very much and shaving requires attention even when you don't dance while you're at it but if he had cut the end of his nose off he would have put a piece of sticking plaster over it and been quite satisfied he dressed himself on his best and at last got out into the streets the people were by this time pouring forth, as he had seen them with the ghost of Christmas present, and walking with his hands behind them. Scrooge regarded everyone with a delighted smile. He looked so irresistibly pleasant. In a word, that three or four good-humored fellows said, "'Good morning, sir. A Merry Christmas to you.' And Scrooge said often afterwards, that of all the blithe sounds that he had ever heard, these were the blithiest in his ears." He had not gone far. When coming on toward him, he beheld the portly gentleman who had walked into his courting house the day before and said, Scrooge and Marley's, I believe. It sent a pang across his heart to think how this old gentleman would look upon him when they met. But he knew what path lies straight before him, and he took it. My dear sir, said Scrooge, quickening his pace and taking the old gentleman by both hands. How do you do? I hope you succeeded yesterday. It was very kind of you. A Merry Christmas to you, sir. Mr. Scrooge? Yes, said Scrooge. That is my name, and I fear it may not be pleasant to you. Allow me to ask your pardon. And will you have the goodness? Here Scrooge whispered in his ear. Lord bless me, cried the gentleman, as if his breath were taken away. My dear Mr. Scrooge, are you serious? If you please, said Scrooge. Now the farthing less. A great many back payments are included in it, I assure you. Will you do me that favor? My dear sir, said the other, shaking hands with him. I don't know what to say to such mo Don't say anything, please, retorted Scrooge. Come and see me. Will you come and see me? I will, cried the gentleman, and it was clear what he meant to do. Thank you, said Scrooge. I am much obliged to you. I thank you fifty times. Bless you. He went to the church and walked about the streets and watched the people hurrying to and fro. And patted children on the head, and questioned beggars, and looked down into the kitchens of houses, and up to the windows, and found that everything could yield him pleasure. He had never dreamed that any walk, that anything, could give him so much happiness. In the afternoon, he turned his steps towards his nephew's house. He passed the door a dozen times before he had the courage to go up and knock, but he made a dash and did it. Is your master home, my dear? said Scrooge to the girl. Nice girl, very. "'Yes, sir. Where is he, my love?' said Scrooge. "'He's in the dining room, sir, along with Mistress. "'I'll show you upstairs, if you please.' "'Thank ye. He knows me,' said Scrooge, "'with his hand already on the dining room lock. "'I'll go in there, my dear.' He turned it gently and saddled his face in round the door. They were looking at the table, which is spread out in great array, for these young housekeepers are always nervous on such points and like to see that everything is right.' Fred, said Scrooge. Dear heart alive! how his niece by marriage started. Scrooge had forgotten, for the moment, about her sitting in the corner with a footstool. Or he wouldn't have done it, on any account. Why bless my soul, cried Fred. Who's that? Tis I, your Uncle Scrooge. I've come to dinner. Will you let me in, Fred? Let him in. It is a mercy he didn't shake his arm off. He was at home in five minutes. Nothing could be heartier. His niece looked just the same. So did Topper when he came in. So did the plump sister when she came in. So did everyone when they came in. Wonderful party. Wonderful games. Wonderful unanimity. Wonderful happiness. But he was early at the office next morning. Oh, he was there early. If he could only been there first and catch Bob Cratchit coming late. That was the thing he had set his heart upon. And he did it. Yes, he did. The clock struck nine. No Bob. Quarter past. No Bob. He was a full 18 minutes and a half behind this time. Scrooge sat with his door wide open that he might see him come into the tank. His hat was off before the door opened, his comforter too. He was on his soul in a jiffy, driving away with his pen as if he were trying to overtake nine o'clock. Hello, growled Scrooge in his accustomed voice, as near as he could feign it. What do you mean by coming this time of day? I'm very sorry, Bob said. I am behind my time. You are? repeated Scrooge. "'Yes, I think you are. Step this way, sir, if you please.' "'It's only once a year, sir,' pleaded Bob, appearing from the tank. "'It shall not be repeated. I was making rather merry yesterday, sir.' "'Now I'll tell you what, my friend,' said Scrooge. "'I'm not going to stand this sort any longer.' And therefore, he continued leaping from his stool, giving Bob such a dig in his waistcoat that he staggered back into the tank again, and therefore, I am about to raise your salary. Bob trembled and got a little nearer to the ruler. He had a momentary idea of knocking Scrooge down with it, holding him, and calling out to the people in the court for help and a straight waistcoat. A Merry Christmas, Bob, said Scrooge, with an eagerness that could not be mistaken as he clapped him on the back. A Merry Christmas, Bob, my good fellow, than I have given you for many a year. i raise your salary, in endeavor to assist your struggling family, and we'll discuss your affairs this very afternoon over a Christmas bowl of smoking bishop, Bob. Make up the fires, and buy another coal scuttle before you dot another eye, Bob Gratchit. Scrooge was better than his word. He did it all, and indefinitely more. And to Tiny Tim, who did not die, he was a second father. He became as good a friend, as good a master, and as good a man as the good old city knew. In any other good old city, town, or borough, In the good old world, some people laughed to see the alteration in him, but he let them laugh, and little heeded them, for he was wise enough to know that nothing had ever happened on this globe for good, at which some people did not have their fill of laughter in the outset, and knowing that such as these will be blind anyway, that he thought it quite as well that they should wrangle up their eyes and grin, as they have the malady in less attractive forms. His own heart laughed, and that was quite enough for him.
4: And that was A Christmas Carol, courtesy of Hyphen Podcast Group. In order of appearance, Melisette of A Frightful Threat. This is the very feed that the show is featured on. It's brought to you by this delightful lady who came to us in a dream. Okay, it wasn't a dream, but <laughs> she came to us. She came from Isla Pal, knew Eric, knew Lamb, and said, I want to do a show. No, she said, I'm going to start a show. And I said, how would you like to join our ranks? She said, I'd be delighted. And then I said, how would you like to run the Instagram? <laughs> and she did that too. So in order of appearance, Melisette, please give it up for everything Melisette has done. We wouldn't be here without her because I wouldn't be reading A Christmas Carol otherwise. I'd just be watching the Muppet version. Also, D.L. Holmes, thank you so much for joining us. Big shout out to the producer extraordinaire of It's Like a Podcast or whatever, or better known for his Soapbox episodes, Michael Lamarique. Thank you so much, sir. Of We Should Do This Again sometime with Cat and Mark. Kit Kat Chinetti, thank you for coming in and putting all the pressure on me. After you absolutely knocked out your part. It's wonderful. Thank you, Kat. Then me, the Kellen Conley, host of Hyphen Nation, founder, editor in chief of hyphen podcast group. No big deal. Followed by Eric Handsome Bane Greenley of It's Like a Podcast or whatever. And he also has something to do with the Shredhead Pod. Just a little something something. Check that out too has some wrestling stuff coming up. Check that out, too. George Gerbo of the Howitzer and Buzzsaw Show and also of Hyphen Nation when he appears. Shout out to you, George. Thank you so much. Also, Mike the Buzzsaw Ostie of the Howitzer and Buzzsaw Show. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you guys for becoming a part of the group. I know you've been podcasting for years and years and years. Happy to help you all along. Y'all's journey and all that. And happy to say y'all are my friends. And then rounded it all out. The thought father himself, Marcus, showing Mad Love Robinson, killing the game and finishing off a Christmas Carol. Marcus, thank you for everything you do. He's also of We Should Do This Again Sometime with Cat and Mark. Please check that out. All hyphen podcast group shows can be found on any podcast listening platform you want to choose. Merry Christmas. Happy New Year. Be safe. And I say all that to say this. Thanks, y'all.